Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast with an increasingly inaccurate name. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and for the next 13 or so weeks, from now until mid to late January, we're doing all Oween. That is all 13 movies in the Halloween franchise. And joining me for this discussion is my co-host and hostage, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm good, Darren. I'm looking forward to working in the lab. Late, late one night. Late tonight. Yeah, the, um, the, this the, this will probably be a late one. It it may indeed be a late one, but it's okay because we have two fantastic guests joining us. First of all, for how are all you, th- Darren? By the way, what? I'm I'm good. I'm good. People, <laughs> yeah, you never really stop to ask that anymore. I really appreciate it. Um, but uh, we've got a co-host joining us for all 13 episodes. Uh, she's going to be here. She's a, an expert in horror cinema. She's going to guide us through this franchise. The fantastic Joey Kyo. How are you, Joey? Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Glad to have you as well. And we have a spectacular guest here, uh, regular at the 250 for our Halloween episode. So we just could not do Halloween without her. The fantastic Dr. Bernice Murphy. How are you, Bernice? Uh, middling to moderate. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I'm sh- <laughs> It's good that you're honest about it. I like, you know, that way then when you say you're good, it, it means... Something. Not great, not terrible, you know? I'm all right. <laughs> what, could, what else could we... What more could we possibly hope for in yeah. early October? I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm on, on board with this. I feel like we should always, you know, say g- genuinely how we are. Not everybody wants to... The, I, I, I remember one time somebody, like, was walking down the street and you know the way when you see people you kind of barely know? And, you know, it's it's like, ah, how's it going? It's supposed to be like not even a stop and chat. Yeah, just an <laughs> acknowledgement. It's like, how's it going? Fine. Yeah, yeah. Where he's like, hey, hey, Andrew, how's it going? It's like, oh, not great. And he was like, slowly stopped. <laughs> he was like, yeah. Oh. <laughs> you have broken the social contract. Yeah. <laughs> Very nice person for kind of <laughs> stopping and like. Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) And I will, Andrew. I will tell you all about it. Basically, this season came about because last year, traditionally over the past couple of years, we have done a thing with Bernice and with Joey more recently, where what we do is for Halloween, we will cover a movie on the top list, the top 250, and a counterpart on the bottom list, the bottom 100, often an original and a sequel. So we did The Exorcist and we did The Heretic. We did Donnie Darko. We did S. Darko. Last year, there was something of a mutiny on the episode (laughs) where... Both Joey and Bernice quite rightly pointed out that it was somewhat inhumane of me to force people to watch S. Darko. <laughs> and so proposed that next year they would come back and they would talk about the two Halloweens, John Carpenter's and Rob Zombie's. And I said, why not make a season of it? Andrew, earlier this year, got us to talk about Chucky. He got us to talk about The Leaving Cert. I said, okay, I'm cashing my chips. Let's talk about all 13 of these movies. We have to find some way of doing 52... Um, episodes in a uh, year episodes this year so i suggest <laughs> like soon we're going to have to kind of just get together and like churn out a whole lot of like low quality content, <laughs> content. Is what we're content. yeah um, we'll we'll be watching this the next movie while, while, while talking about the, the one we on just subtitles watched. in the background yeah yeah um, 
But yeah, I mean, to be fair, if anything lends itself to that approach, it's probably Halloween 4 through Halloween <laughs> 6. Um, but Joey, you're going to be joining us for all 13 of these. Do you... What is your association with the Halloween franchise? Like, do you remember the first time you saw one of these movies? Do you have a fondness for Michael Myers as a character? How do you place it in the horror canon? And is Halloween fundamentally different from the other big horror franchises, say The Exorcist or Nightmare on Elm Street or any of those, Friday the 13th? It's an interesting one because um, Halloween, obviously, as you said yourself, there's 13 entries. Unlike other franchises, most of those entries aren't very good. But you probably already know this. It's held in very, very high esteem among horror fans. When the modern trilogy was released, I mean, it was just lambasted across the board by just these militant horror buffs who were like, this is terrible. I'd rather watch Halloween 5, which sounds insane to me. Like, obviously, we'll get there. But I think the modern trilogy, I think, is a masterpiece. And they took so many risks and it was so different and you know, we'll see as we're going through each one, but there's this large, large dip in quality. And there's also an argument to be made, I think, that it should never have had a sequel because Halloween is such a self-contained story. And it's a very, very simple story, as I'm sure we'll get into tonight. But I mean, Michael Myers is a wonderful character. He's less wonderful when Rob Zombie tries to figure out what his motivation was, although I don't really judge him for that because I think a lot of horror fans probably spent our whole lives wondering why he did what he did. So, you know, if we had the chance to tell the story, why wouldn't you? Um, not that he justifies it, but it's it's a weird one because obviously Michael Myers is a horror icon. Obviously, Halloween is still very important, even though they're saying it's done now. It's probably not <laughs> because, you know, how could it be? But yeah, it's a weird one because of that kind of massive dip in quality once you get past the first two. Um, and then obviously when it was redone in the this modern trilogy, even after Rob Zombie, because those movies aren't held in very high regard either, it was kind of another. So yeah, it's it's an odd one, but it's I wouldn't say it's one of my favorites um, because I like so few of them, but I do, I recognize its importance and I'm glad that it exists, if nothing else. Yeah, I mean... One of the reasons why I thought it might be fun to do all 13, um, well, first of all, it was because you two suggested doing just these two. And I felt like if you're covering those two, you may as well get into all you of know, Season mm. of the Witch. You may as well delve into Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. You may as well talk about Green's three movies. Oh, yes. You may as well talk about H2O, at which point yeah. you might as well do just cover yeah. all 13 of them. Exactly. It, like, I... Um, Andrew's enthusiasm if... <laughs> just <laughs> No, but I think it's important to do all 13, because if you don't, there's a danger of us like talking about a movie on the 250. <laughs> well, that is a very fair point, possibly completing this podcast. Well, when you Sorry, suggested Joe. it, that was what I said to you. I said, only if we're going to do every single one. <laughs> um, but I, I think like the other argument I would make for it is that I think when we do seasons on the show... Um, which are like seasons in the sun. Um, you, we have joy, we have fun, we do seasons on the show. <laughs> but we, I like that they can craft an arc. So you can look at things like, say, the Jaws sequels, uh, which Joey guessed it on. Mm. Uh, you can look at something like, say, the Indiana Jones films, and you can chart a history of Hollywood over a set period of time. Yes. And I think what the Halloween franchise is very good at is charting a history of the horror genre in Hollywood. If you want to check the temperature on where horror is at a given point between 1978 and the present, you just look at what is Halloween doing, and it will offer you a pretty good temperature check but bernice you've obviously you've written well we've talked on the podcast before about your work the suburban gothic in american life mm. um and obviously I, halloween is a huge part of that but the franchise as a whole and michael myers do you have any opinions broadly about the films and about the character and about his place in 
horror canon. Well, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this in great depth in the next hour in particular. Uh, but, of course, the first film is one of the foundational mm. uh, ho- films that really created uh, modern American horror in particular, as we understand it today. So along with Rosemary's Baby, uh, The Exorcist, um, it's it's one of those films that really sh- f- so profoundly shaped the shape of the shape uh, of horror <laughs> to come over the next uh, you know four or five decades that you can't not talk about contemporary horror I think without mentioning Halloween. Uh, so I mean the first film I think as Joey mentioned one of the things I love about it is it is she said it is it is so simple it is elegantly simple mm. it there's no backstory it's it's just it's it's you know the the I'm certainly not the first critic to point it out but a, a comparison that's often evoked about Halloween is that it's very like Jaws and that Michael Myers is like a Jaws type figure where <laughs> it doesn't matter why Jaws decided to start eating humans. It's irrelevant. You don't need his backstory, Rob Zombie. Um, <laughs> it's it's all the more terrifying and it's all the more unsettling because it's just a complete mystery. He is, as you know, Loomis, Loomis says, he's the embodiment of evil. He cannot be explained. Uh, he may or may not have the devil's eyes. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think I think there's there's a simplicity, simplicity and an elegance and I think something that is missing from the vast majority of the sequels, except in the cases where they directly try and emulate what Carpenter did, so um, is a sense of eeriness and really of, of a genuinely spooky atmosphere. Because one of the things that Carpenter does that the other films, well, some of the later prequel, for sequels, of course, play into this in a more detailed way, but Carpenter treats him like he's a ghost. He shoots it as if Michael Myers is a kind of an apparition, which in a way he is. And I think it lends... A lot of scenes that, you know, stalk and slash scenes, as you might call them, just, I think, a sense of of atmosphere and of uncanny possibility that a lot of other films of this type that might be loosely compared to Halloween, like the Friday the 13th franchise, which I've never really been a fan of at all. I wouldn't go back and rewatch any of them, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it makes it far superior because it's working with better material in the first place. I mean, you compare, I know people love Friday the 13th, so I don't want to, you know, <laughs> crap all over a franchise that clearly a lot of people are fond of. It's never done anything for me. And I will fight you in, in you know, the car park. Halloween is a much superior <laughs> film to uh, to Friday the 13th part one. Um, and also, I think I just want to mention too that Halloween is often described as being the film that kicked off the slasher uh, tradition which is right in the way, but wrong in a way, because actually there's a really good Canadian film from a, a 1974 called Black Christmas, which I'm sure some of your viewers will have heard yeah. of. It actually pioneers some of the techniques uh, directed by a guy called Bob Clark, who's better known for the Porky's franchise. Um, <laughs> and Baby so, Genius is one and two. Yeah. And, and he did, didn't he do A Christmas Story as well, I think? He's got a, yeah. got a great it's got range. diverse filmography. Um, so, wow. so Halloween's, I think, absolute originality is sometimes uh, problematically overstated. The Canadians actually got there first. Arguably, Agatha Christie got there first with her novel, and then there were none. Alfred Hitchcock did a lot with, you know, Psycho, of course. <laughs> yeah, with Psycho. But... Um, but you can't get away from Halloween. I just, I, I love it to bits, actually. I really do. Every time it starts off, I'm sort of sucked back into it again. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I just think it's tremendous. You know, there's bits of it that haven't aged that well, but you can say that for all of us, you know? Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I like the The thing about Halloween is that it does kind of, it th- sort of does have a backstory in the sense that like, you know, you know that, and 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 it doesn't require any more. I don't think. Then, then, then the gives. movie gives you. It's very controlled in what it does. Yeah, yeah. He has full confidence yeah. in the material, and rightly so. Also, there, 
there there's plenty of things where there's no backstory and and we're okay when we're on board with it paw patrol for example <laughs> there's no there's no explanation yeah, what's going on how, how, how did that situation come about where, where, where an entire community came to invest like all of their power in these five canines i think i how do we know how many there are there's sky yeah okay we're, nice. we're not we're not discussing <laughs> paw patrol i am <laughs> i beg your pardon <laughs> That's that's next year's uh, Halloween season, uh, <laughs> discussing all the Paw Patrol <laughs> movies. Have you heard that it's coming out the same day as Saul? That's the new thing. That's the new yes. Barbenheimer is Saul Patrol. They're trying to make that happen so bad. And yeah. it's, it's I know. ludicrous. No. I mean, I wouldn't watch either, but whatever. I think I'd rather watch Paw Patrol, actually. And I'm, Me I too. I don't even have or know any small children, you know, and I still... <laughs> no. Mm-mm. I mean, they are both elaborate torture mechanisms. Um Ha! <laughs> But yes, so just again, just to give some very, very quick background on Halloween, how it came about. Um, it all Do you begins. Mean children are elaborate torture. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I beg your pardon. <laughs> uh, yes, very much to the point of the movie we are discussing, perhaps one might say. Um, but yes, so Halloween begins with producer Erwin Yablins, um, who is basically. He was the brother of Frank Yablins, who was the president of Paramount, who produced Mummy's Dearest. Mummy Dearest. Uh, his father was a taxi driver. And, you know, he basically said when he moved to Los Angeles, he was so frustrated. He felt so frustrated trying to get a grip, get a hole in the industry. And, you know, his, his wife basically told him to get himself together, figure out what he has to do and, like, do whatever it takes to make a successful movie. So he's apparently on the plane on the way back from a film festival in Milan. Looking for an idea, and I quote here, that wouldn't cost money because I didn't have any money. I couldn't afford to buy a book or a play, and it happened to be Halloween night. The thing that amazed me, that baffled me to this day, is that in 75 years of movie making, nobody had ever used the title Halloween for a picture. I wanted to make a movie like Inner Sanctum, the old radio show, the kind of show I used to listen to as a kid hiding under the bed covers. No gore, no blood, let people supply their own demons, their own minds. When I hired John Carpenter, no one would give him a job because he hadn't done anything. It was an old routine. He'd written a screenplay called The Eyes of Laura Mars. They pumped it into an overblown stupid movie and wouldn't let him direct. I gave him the opportunity to direct, so he worked for very little. He took a percentage. To date, it's got him close to a million dollars, which is fascinating. Mm. Like, it's such a cynical money-making maneuver. Carpenter at the time, he'd obviously, he made Dark Star, which was his first film, which he'd filmed over years and months, basically. He spent, you know, all of his effort trying to get that made. He made Assault on uh, Precinct 13, which, you know, he's much prouder of, I think holds up much better, has become a cult classic, but it bombed at the American box office. It performed surprisingly well in England, in large part due to a marketing executive named Michael Myers. (laughs) who so impressed Carpenter (laughs) with his selling of Assault on Precinct 13 in European markets that he decided he would pay a tribute to him in his next movie. But basically, Carpenter was kind of like, I I need to make another movie and I need to make it quick. Uh, And he agreed to sign on to Halloween for a small amount of money, a percentage off the back end, and complete creative freedom. He wanted final cut on the movie. Those were his conditions. Basically, they went... What? (laughs) I... I... Did... What... Was that like it's so good, the the, the John Carpenter's music? It, 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 well, you know he he only does his music because he's the best and cheapest he can afford. <laughs> That's his line. That's like yeah. Carpenter's line on why he provides his own scores. But it's wild. It should be yeah. bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Well, like 
that's the thing about this movie is that this movie begins with a pitch that is basically like Yablin says he settled on Halloween once he realized the name wasn't copyrighted. The initial pitch that he sat down with Carpenter was the babysitter murderers. And they talk to uh, Mustafa Akkad, who was a like financier um, from the Middle East. He wanted to be, I believe he described, he wanted to be David Lean for the Arab world is how he described it. He had directed a movie called The Promise, uh, sorry, The Message, which was usually controversial because it was based around the history of the Prophet Muhammad. It didn't show the character on screen, but there was basically an incident in Washington where a bunch of terrorists took some people hostage and several people died as a result. But that had brought Yablins um, and Akkad together. And basically, they formed kind of a business partnership. Akkad, while this was working, was apparently over in Jordan filming The Lion in the Desert, which was a movie that was running so far over budget and so far over time that he was burning like $300,000 a day on it. So Yablins comes to him and he says, look, I've got a pitch for you. The Babysitter Murders. And it'll only cost you $300,000. A single day overrun on this gigantic production. And Akkad's response is... The babysitter part grabbed me, Akkad said, because every kid in America knows what a babysitter is. (laughs) That was apparently all it took to sell Akkad on this, giving him $300,000, relatively free reign, and just letting him go out and make the movie. Uh, And again, like, it's fascinating because, like, this is, according to Carpenter, this is one of the most joyous experiences he had making a film, but it wasn't a film that he was particularly passionate about. In fact, like, during the pre-production... He was off making Somebody's Watching Me, which is a movie for television that deals with kind of a similar sort of thing. It's a stalker, but it's in an urban environment. It was Deborah Hill at that point was writing the screenplay. And in fact, you can actually divvy up uh, a lot of the screenplay between Carpenter and between Hill, um, where Hill is responsible for a lot of the Laurie Strode stuff, Mm -hmm. a lot of the teenage girl stuff, a lot of the babysitting stuff, which comes from a lot of her own experiences. Haddonfield, Illinois is named for Hill's hometown of Haddonfield, New Jersey. And then Carpenter kind of came in and he layered over the stuff with Loomis and the stuff with the shape, uh, which if you know Carpenter's filmography, that kind of tracks. It's like if you were to pick the elements of these films that feel most specifically in tune with Carpenter, it's the bleak nihilism and the idea that nothing matters and that the only person who can save you is a raving lunatic. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they they shot it. Uh, it went relatively quickly. They were on a tiny, tiny budget. Most of the budget went towards hiring Donald Pleasance. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful quote from the Yablins about like casting this movie. Mr. Yablin says he's made six profitable movies and never used a star. Stars are what's killing the business. You don't need them. Then why do studios always try to hire Marlon Brando? Because studios are run by weaklings and phonies, says Mr. Yablins. If they hire the stars and stars fail, no one can criticize them. Well, the thing is that they, they did hire a star. It's just that they, they created a star. Uh, well, this is the the casting of um, yes, Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, yeah. Like, would would this movie be kind of? I I mean, there's there's so much to recommend about this movie, but you know, would would it would it be as kind of memorable if it wasn't for that performance? I mean, this... I, I I guess we 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 can compare other Larry Strodes at some point <laughs> in, in the future, but the um, yeah, that I I I feel like you you know, it's like. We decided to save money by discovering Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> we say discovering Jamie Lee Curtis as if she wasn't like the daughter of two of the biggest stars of the. Golden no, but Age this is her introduction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, she had apparently they tried to cast her in The Exorcist for the same trick. Like they'd apparently tried to cast her as a uh, little girl Reagan in The Exorcist. And apparently uh, Janet Lee had said no, no way whatsoever. Um, and she had tried to break into movies. She appeared, I think, on a TV soap opera before this from which she'd been fired. Um, and basically Carpenter has said, look, when I hired her, I hired her primarily because of the name value. Yeah. I'm a huge Hitchcock fan. Psycho is very obviously a heavy influence on this. The doctor, Samuel Loomis, who's named for the boyfriend character. There's a nurse named Marion uh, there as well. Like, and even in terms of, you could argue the Loomis character is very similar to the character who shows up at the end of Psycho and conveniently explains the entire plot to you, <laughs> um, except he's the co-protagonist of the movie. But Bernice, as as like an expert in horror cinema, you you mentioned the idea of Halloween getting a lot of credit for things or for galvanizing things that were in the culture anyway. So like the idea of like, is it the first slasher? And it's like, well, do you count Psycho? Do you count Peeping mm. Tom? Do you count Texas mm. Chainsaw Massacre? Do you count Black Christmas? Uh, yeah. The final girl, the, the, the phenomenon that Andrew mentioned, like the Laurie Strode, the Jamie Lee Curtis, where obviously there are earlier movies that have final girls in them. Obviously you mentioned Black Christmas, Texas Chainsaw, mm. one of the great iconic final yeah, girls, solid. one of the great iconic final shots. Yeah. Of a final girl as well. But, like, does Jamie Lee Curtis occupy, like, a singular space in the consciousness, in the horror? Is is there, a like, a difference between Laurie Strode? Is Laurie Strode a moment where, like, that archetype just snaps into being, in your opinion? I, I think so. I think it's probably partially because Curtis went on to have a remarkable career that she's, of course, still having. She only, what, only won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress a few months ago. Um, so a lot of the other final girls, for whatever reason didn't go on to that kind of career. And and so we're kind of iconically associated with, with within the horror community with this one role, but didn't really get a chance to do much after that. So there's the fact that Curtis became really, a, maybe not quite a superstar, but a, a, an A-list, really in-demand actress in the 80s and has, um, after a while in yogurt adverts in the US, <laughs> has, really, <laughs> has really come back and, and has having a remarkable uh, you know decade in her 60s. and uh, I think she's in her mid-60s at the moment. So I think there's that. Um, I think one one thing that always strikes me when I watch um, Halloween is that she's very unconventional looking. I mean, famously, she has quite she's an androgynous kind of look. She's obviously a very, very beautiful looking person. She's very striking looking. But it's in a very androgynous way that particularly in the late 70s, you didn't usually see in your kind of your leading lady. There, you know, there's something very striking about her face. There's a kind of a I think one thing of the viewers watching this and I've had this reaction from students that I've you know forced to watch the film as part of our. Uh, American horror course. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of them get a bit frustrated with Laurie because they feel that compared to say the likes of Nancy and Nightmare on Elm Street, that she's not quite as proactive uh, a final girl. They're maybe expecting a more modern conception of the final girl who's kicking ass and taking names. Um, or although in more recent iterations of the final girl, nine times out of ten, she's the killer, which just bores the hell out of me now. Don't get me started. <laughs> so I think there's something. I think there's a kind of a, a solemnity to her performance, a graveness a kind of a, a quiet sense of intelligence about the character. The fact that she has quite an unusual kind of look and presence. Um, she was the only, I believe she was the only actual teenager in the cast. She was 19 when the yes. film was made. So she actually was the youngest person kind of on set, which on I think set. adds to the, adds to the feeling of the film. So I do. And I think there's the fact that, you know, it's, it's a really good film. It's, it's John Carpenter. Mm. Um, I mean, Bookended by films that I think actually, I mean, actually are slightly better than Halloween, which says a lot, uh, you know, I mean, Assault and Precinct 13 is incredible. And then you've got The Fog, which I know doesn't maybe get talked as much about as Halloween, but it's absolutely stunning. Um, 
and of course has Jamie Lee Curtis and her mother in it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think you've got a, a director who really knows how to handle this material uh, with a with a fantastic leading lady, um, a great supporting cast, and yeah, I think there is something special about uh, Curtis's performance. Um, there's a slight oddness to it, I think, that really works. She's if you watch. I don't want to go into this because maybe go into it a little bit later, but she's like a very classic gothic heroine. Um, the sense that she's kind of um, uh, 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 accidentally bringing this terrible fate upon herself, that there is this connection between her and the killer who who's victimizing her and that there's kind of a, a kinship between them, which is something that scholarship on the final girl actually most famously by Carol J. Clover really, really picked up on and ran with. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it's hard to top her, I, 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 not to diss any other final girls that are out there or final boys um but i mean she's top of the heap she has to be you know yeah. i mean michael has been trying to top her for several decades now <laughs> um, allowing for halloween resurrections but we won't get to that for another yeah. couple of weeks um but like the thing that strikes me about this is like curtis two things about curtis first of all like she was very insecure when she was doing it she said like her first day of filming she was convinced that she did terribly and she was going to be fired And she said that like it was she went back to the hotel or wherever it was that they were staying and she got a phone call from Carpenter just telling her that she killed it today. And it was like, that's the (laughs) nicest thing that ever happened. No director has ever done that since, which I thought was quite funny. Um, And then the other thing is that like you mentioned the fact that many final girls don't necessarily go much further or branch out from the medium in a certain way. I do think there's also a case that for a lot of actors who have early roles in horror, I'm thinking, say, Kevin Bacon, arguably, and say, Friday the 13th, to pick an example, uh, you run as far away from that as possible. And I think that what's maybe different about Curtis is that Curtis never really distanced herself from horror to the same extent that many of her contemporaries did. I know that like when she came back and did uh, part two, she was like, this is my last slasher film. But like she's indelibly tied to the Halloween franchise in a way that... She was one of the first Scream Queens. Well, not one of the first, but she was in the 70s and 80s. And was it Prom Night Terror Train? Prom Night? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. uh, Was it Road Games? You know, she had a great run of of really interesting films. In the space of two years as well, which is incredible. But sorry, Joey, what about yourself? Is is that what makes Jamie Lee Curtis different? Or is it something else? I think a lot of it has to do with Deborah Hill's writing. As you said, she handled all the teenage girl stuff. And I mean, we're going to talk about this when we get to Rob Zombie's Halloween. But that's so, so important for what makes this movie really sing. I think as well, she embodies Laurie Strode. I mean, even when I was watching it this time, I was struck like, her friends are quite mean to her and she speaks quite quietly. She's quite meek and she's kind of going into herself. And I know Bernice was saying like modern audiences don't understand that, but she really sort of has to be forced to rise to the occasion. And for me, I find that really endearing because if I was in Mm. that situation, I don't think I'd be like, kids, come on, grab the knives. We're going to fight back. Like, I think I'd be terrified. I think I'd be, you know, I think about when I used to babysit and I'd freak myself out usually because I was watching horror movies. Um, but with with Jamie Lee Curtis as well, when she came back for the modern trilogy, I mean, I consider that some of the best material of her career. Like, I think she should have got the Oscar for those movies, not for everything everywhere. Um, and I think in those movies as well, it it's so clear how tied she is to that character and how her and that character are, you know, you kind of can't really tell the difference between the two of them at this stage. Like to come back 40 years later and be even better. And again, her connection to the shape is is so much deeper in the modern trilogy as well. But so much of that comes from the people writing those movies have so much respect and so much love for this character. 
and for her. Um, so, but I mean, this, as we'll see as we go on, these, Michael Myers is very, very important. These movies don't work without Laurie Strode. I have a question and may, maybe you shouldn't tell me the answer. <laughs> and I should figure, figure it out myself. What is the shape? <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. The shape is Michael Myers. It's in the stage directions. John Carpenter did not refer to him by name. He referred to him as the shape. <laughs> okay. Um, this is the thing. And in the credits of certain movies uh, in the Halloween franchise, he will be credited as the shape. You can generally tell how faithful a Halloween movie is to John Carpenter's like basic template by whether or not it credits him as Michael Myers or as the shape. Mm-hmm. Pointedly, I believe in this movie, they never say Michael Myers. They refer to the Myers house and they call him Michael. They never call him Michael Myers. The name right. is, those two names are never said together. Um, and that's, I think, is, we'll maybe get in, when we talk in the spoiler zone about like the carpenterness of this movie, that is one of the things about it, where he is kind of an absence. The, the kind of the fascinating what is Michael Myers aspect, which is an interesting thing to unpack. And I think kind of maybe curses the franchise <laughs> like uh, without getting too much into it 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 really does feel like as joey said this is a self-contained movie that has a clear idea of what michael myers represents mm. and it's as the series goes on the people working on it are like but wait uh, what what is michael myers let's try and answer that question in 10 different ways because it, it it feels like it's kind of begging for a sequel without kind of uh, fast forwarding oh no carpenter said he didn't plan to make a sequel again he he was he didn't even want to direct uh, he didn't want to even be involved in the sequel now we'll talk when we talk about halloween 2 we will talk about how carter was kind of uh, sorry how carpenter was strong-armed into coming back Uh, we're getting the most of our seven day Lionsgate free try. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, we are. <laughs> Very efficient podcasting. Um, we should note, yeah, so basically the movie was shot in 12 days for a budget of $320,000, with 20000 of that going to Donald Pleasance, which is kind of incredible. Mm. Uh, apparently a large portion of that was spent on leaves, yeah. <laughs> because uh, this is set... In Haddonfield, Illinois, uh, which is, according to the movies, in Livingston, um, just outside Chicago. It's a suburb of Chicago. It does not actually exist. Based on the town in New Jersey, filmed in Pasadena, where obviously autumn doesn't work the same way. So they had to, like, buy a big bag of leaves and paint them brown. And they could only afford so many of them that when they finished shooting... They'd have to bundle them up into bags and then take them to the next filming location so they could scatter them around and make that look suitably autumnal. Um, like, I love that the, apparently the Myers house, which is the opening location of the film, that sequence had to be shot last because they'd settled on using a dilapidated house because obviously later in the movie, the Myers house is dilapidated. But for the prologue section, it needed to look like a house that was actually inhabited. So they had to wait until the end of the shoot, spent a whole day repainting the inside of the house and redecorating the inside of the house to make it look like a place where people could live. Um, and apparently, like, even Jamie Lee Curtis kind of pitched into painting and all that sort of stuff. It's it's one of those great stories of independent cinema. And it ended up taking, like, $117 million worldwide, which is incredible. Um, wow. It is... It was the most profitable movie or most profitable independent movie at least 
until the Blair Witch Project in 1999, um, which was even more profitable. But that's 21 years where this was one of the most profitable movies ever made. And I think we kind of alluded to it in Manos, The Hands of Fate, the idea of like (laughs) how much of the history of American independent cinema lies in horror, but how we don't talk about it. Um, Bernice, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think we've maybe discussed this before, probably with that terrible film you forced me to watch. Um, <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> I, still, I still have the dreams. I still have the dreams. Um, but yeah, I think because horror is a sure bet, uh, it's, it's a genre that, you know, if you're, and if you're good, you know, genre tends to sell. It's a hell of a lot cheaper to make than a Western or a science or most science fiction films. So, you know, you can't, if you want to have any of the conventional genre trappings. So horror is, you know, an obvious choice because the other thing we've talked about before is horror fans tend to turn up. Um, you know, they're completists. They will, if, if there's a horror, you know, if you're a horror fan, there's something playing in the cinema, even if you don't know what it is, you'll probably go, you know what, I think I'll check that out. And I think that that is, you can't say that of a, of a lot of different type, types of films. I think... Um, so I think it makes total sense that uh, I think it's also it, it allows room for exper- a degree of experimentation that perhaps the more strictly realist genre might perhaps uh, frustrate. Yeah. Or is it hard you can get away with more, <laughs> get away with more, more silliness, more, more, more sort of scenes of a graphic nature, if that's your bag. Um, so, yeah, I think it, I think it makes sense. I think I mean, I think it's predominantly down to the audience, you know, mm. horror fans will turn up, especially if Patrick Wilson as the history of the horror Halloween franchise, for better or worse. Also, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> uh, sorry, Andrew. especially were you saying were you about to say especially if Patrick Wilson directs. Or if he's in. That's why I went. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that the new Conjuring? Is it really? Is it or the new? Uh, no, in Insidious. Insidious. The new Insidious. Yeah, it's terrible. It's is it really so, boring? It looked really boring. It's one of the, the ugliest just... films I've ever seen. Like, it's actually hard to look at. And he commits 100% behind oh. and in front of the camera. Yeah. And it's yeah. just awful. I mean, I don't like that franchise anyway. But... Poor Patrick Wilson. Poor, yeah. But... America's sweetheart, Patrick Wilson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a good lad. No, they, they, he's also got The Conjuring. Or, or did we say The Conjuring or Insidious? No, Insidious. No, Insidious is a separate yeah, one. He's yeah, in so Insidious yeah. is a, it's the other James Wan horror franchise. Um... <laughs> There are several of yes. them. Um, it's, but, um, is Rose Byrne also in both? Or? No. no, Rose Byrne is an insidious. <laughs> it's Vera Farmiga in ah, The Conjuring. Okay. If you want the really right-wing, religious, conservative, Catholic one, that's The Conjuring. That's how you tell the difference. There's, more ro- <laughs> there's a lot more rosary beads and slightly dodgy... Uh, yeah, which, which one of these is... Don't get me started on the Warrens, uh, honestly. I was about but, to say... Yeah. Which one of Dodgy these characters. is lining the pockets yeah. of a bunch of incredibly cynical hucksters? Um, it's not. It's not insidious. Is the answer to that question? <laughs> uh, I I like by the way this quote I have from John Carpenter when like he says like when he was approached by Irwin Yablins with the babysitter murders as a premise, Carpenter's response was, "It was a horrible idea, but I wanted to make more movies, so I said great." <laughs> um, and and like I think that's what really stands this is carpenter is a director obviously like a lot of his great movies are horror movies um we mentioned you mentioned the fog this is a great example as well you go with the thing all that sort of stuff but he's a director who just wants to make movies his big influences are obviously like hawks but they're you know hitchcock um and like the thing about assault on precinct 13 was that was his western he'd always wanted to make a hawk style western and i think that even here like his influences you know, it's not only Psycho, but he's drawing from the opening sequence draws from Touch of Evil, the Orson Welles movie, for example. Um, and like, I think we talked about when we talked about the thing. Carpenter's, like Carpenter, who is an incredibly canny operator, 
is like, look, doesn't matter how much the movie actually costs. I have shot every movie that I have made, with the exception of my first one, which is Dark Star, and my last one, which is The Ward, in anamorphic widescreen. Because to an audience, that just looks expensive. Like, you see a widescreen presentation, particularly in the 1970s, and you're like, somebody cares about, like, craft making this movie. <laughs> um, Dean Cundy, who is the cinematographer here, who had worked with Deborah Hill on a couple of earlier projects, I believe she comes to Carpenter through Hill. Uh, obviously, he goes on, he works with Carpenter on a number of other projects and goes on to work with, like, Spielberg on Jurassic Park. Like, goes on to be one of the defining cinematographers of, like, 20th century American cinema. He comes up with the idea of using the Panaglide system, which is an early and cheap uh, counterpart to the Steadicam, where instead of placing it on a dolly that you wheel around and is perfectly level, you instead strap it to a to a filmmaker where they hold the camera and it's basically built into their body so it's kept kind of level. Um, but it does mean that the film has a kind of a very interesting aesthetic in terms of how it's shot, where it's kind of steady, but it's not quite. There's a little bit of movement because it's attached to an operator on like a steady cam, which glides. The great example being obviously Kubrick's The Shining, which is one of the movies that people point to when they look at steady cam. Here, when you're watching these shots, they're beautifully composed. They're very carefully put together. But when they move, they wobble just a little bit which gives you the impression that you are watching through the eyes of a person mm. as if as if a person is walking and you are seeing through their eyes it's just a stunningly 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 well-made film um and i think that like that's that's the thing carpenter is a professional and, and i think that's the thing that differentiates this from not only so many of the movies that came before and i think you can argue and bernice and joey make correct me if I'm wrong here, that there are, like, you can look at two competing strains of American horror cinema coming up to Halloween. First of which is the big studio strain, which is movies like Rosemary's Babies. Uh, Rosemary's Baby. It's movies like The Exorcist. It's these movies that are produced and they get nominated for Oscars. Even movies like The Omen, for example, which gets a big distribution deal. And then you have the grungy independents, and those are movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre by Tobe Hooper and stuff like that. Um, and what you have with Halloween is you almost have a fusion of like the craft and form, classic formalism that you associate with movies like The Exorcist, for example, with movies like Rosemary's Baby, with the content. Um, you know, there's a man running around with a knife stabbing people that you associate with movies like, say, Bob Clark's Black Christmas or movies like, say, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And that is kind of like, for maybe for me one of the reasons why this movie exists in such a unique place in 1978 is that fair to say yeah definitely i think um since you're talking about the cameras as well the importance of camera placement where he puts the camera i mean everyone copies that now in fact when you watch a horror movie especially a modern horror movie like insidious or whatever you can spot when the scares are coming because of where the camera's placed so he's brilliant in that sense as well yeah, I mean, one of the things we do as we go through this is we won't be just checking in on the Halloween franchise. We'll probably end up checking in on the horror genre. <laughs> and that will largely mean checking in on like the horror genre's relationship to Carpenter. Mm. But it's fascinating how it seems like it took Hollywood years to figure out that what made Carpenter's films so good was that care and that craft. Where you look at something like, say, Get Out, 
Like the, the famous example of like Jordan Peele quote tweeting somebody calling him the greatest oh. horror director in American cinema yes. and Peele saying, please, sir, step away from the phone. Yeah. I will not tolerate any John Carpenter slander. But if you look at how Peele shoots like Get Out or Us or even Nope, there's a lot of Carpenter in there. It's like this is now what horror looks like. Recently, the, the Firestarter movie starring Zac Efron, which nobody will remember by the time this podcast comes out. I've already forgotten. <laughs> but which is this interesting object that exists as a Hollywood history in-joke, where it's like Carpenter, after making the thing, after the thing bombed, was like, I need to make a hit. That means I need to make a Stephen King adaptation. So he goes to Universal and he's like, I want to make Firestarter. And they're like, we kind of expect Firestarter to make some money. How would you like to make Christine? The one with the killer car. And Carpenter's like, okay, fine. I will make Christine. But the Firestarter movie that came uh, out last... I shouldn't have told them that I'd do anything. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have told them I'd do anything. Weakened my negotiating position. Um, but the Firestarter movie... That, that, that's Firestarter. That's the one that launched through Barrymore. That's one of the movies that launched through Barrymore after E.T. After E.T.? After E.T., yeah. That okay. was like a star vehicle for Drew Barrymore, the 1980s Firestarter. Um, but the one that came out last year starring Zac Efron, obviously a star vehicle for an equally talented and equally important figure in American cinema history, uh, was it's a movie that is very consciously designed to look like a Carpenter film, right down to the opening credits font, right down to the careful framing, the anamorphic widescreen, the placing of the camera. And it's very disconcerting to watch because it's like, you never gave Carpenter this money. You never gave Carpenter this platform. You never gave him these opportunities. But now you're like, no, horror movies look like they're directed by John well, Carpenter. It's Stranger Things. I mean, come on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Particularly Stranger Things season one. I mean, when it's not, I kindly say this, paying homage to Stephen King. It's paying homage to John Carpenter. <laughs> <laughs> so like it, that... Do we have any thoughts on Carpenter before we move into the spoiler zone, just in general, in terms of his place in the horror canon and in terms of, like, Halloween as an autorist work? Like, like how much of Halloween is tied to Carpenter and how much of, like, the franchise's up and downs are related to its relationship to Carpenter? Well, I think that the lack of Carpenter, obviously, is is the issue with this. I know he was slightly involved with the sequel, wasn't he? I think he actually mm. directed some scenes there. He and, ghost directed and quite, the sequel. I quite yeah. like number he, two. I know it's obviously a lot gorier, but I think I, yeah. I had watched I watched it recently and I was really surprised at how good how much I I enjoy it's a it's a more hardcore kind of film in some ways. It's more uh more it's more brutal. Um and of course Laurie gets kind of sidelined somewhat in it. But I think it's still quite a good film and it's got it's got that great thing of that American myth of the that scene that I you know a lot of people maybe remember of the kid with the apple with the razor blades in it, which, mm. uh, yeah. which I think did a lot to kind of Had nothing to do with the plot. No, <laughs> it's just, but it's just like Halloween is when bad shit happens to kids. Um, so I think I I think in terms of of Carpenter as as a horror, as an auteur, I mean, my good God, he's John Carpenter. I mean, I will admit I went to see The Ward and practically fell asleep. I would not have known. It was directed by John Carpenter. So, and you know, it, clearly it was a project that didn't work out, I'm sure, as he had hoped either. Um, but by God, he had, he had a hell of a run of it. I mean, I think one of those, un, more, the more unrivaled runs of incredibly yeah. good films. I mean, I'd even include, I know people don't really like Invisible Man, but I think there's interesting stuff in it. It hasn't necessarily aged well. Um, I love that you're not stretching to Village of the Dam. Like, even that is kind of indefensible. I, 
I would say even John Carpenter maybe finds it difficult to defend, to defend mm-hmm. uh, uh, the Children of the Damned, which uh, I mean could have on paper an incredibly interesting project. Um, Kirsty Alley casting that doesn't look and great Christopher today. Reeve, Christopher <laughs> Reeve, uh, you know at the time a big name, um, but uh, you know I think that the Children of the Damned films are always are all on TV show the recent one they're always damned by the fact that they insist on using terrible wigs for the kids so you just can't <laughs> even if it's good you're just going no I don't believe this. Um, so what was was I saying in a very rambling way? Um, yeah, I mean he's John Carpenter, you know. I think yeah. Jordan Peele is absolutely right to have no truck with people who um, probably just don't have enough of an awareness of horror history. Sorry to put my, you know, horror fan hat on, but um, if you think there's anyone who's got a better run of horror films in the last forty years than him, I mean, I'd be I'd like to hear that name. You know, mm-hmm. is Craven a contender? Not to not to open up the debate. I think Carpenter's but... better than Craven, and I don't mean that as a diss on Craven, but I, I think that okay. just Carpenter, particularly a film like The Fog, there's the opening sequence where um, the fog rolls in over the town, and the payphones start ringing, and I think there's like a five minute sequence that I think is one of the be- the most atmospheric, spooky things ever created by an American director. Wes Craven, not you know, could not do that. John Carpenter could. Um, mm-hmm. So he he will always edge out. I, I think I think Craven had more bad projects, to be honest, as well, or less good projects. We we should also note you mentioned uh, his involvement with Halloween Two, uh, but that script was famously written by Carpenter under a stigma of contractual obligation uh, over a course of a single night and a six pack of beer. <laughs> um, that is apparently how that project materialized. Um, and I do like that his his quote about how in France. I'm an auteur. In the UK, I'm a respected horror director. In Germany, I'm a studio filmmaker. But in America, I'm a bum. Which is kind of like an interesting uh, assessment of his own career. But Joey, what about yourself in terms of like the Halloween franchise and the John Carpenter-ness of it? And like, is Carpenter escapable when it comes to talking about these movies, these Halloween films? I think the thing is, with Halloween, he made it look easy. So then all these people came along and were like, well, I can do that and quickly proved that they couldn't. You know, I mean, he very famously gave his blessing for the new, for the modern trilogy. You can see why, because they were doing their own thing, but they were still saying, you know, Carpenter led the way and we still have to pay homage to him. Um, I just, I mean, I agree about Wes Craven. Scream is my favourite franchise, I just adore it. But I think Wes Craven's more of a workman-like director. He's a little bit less patient than John Carpenter and John Carpenter's just so... But also what we have to remember is Halloween was shot so quickly that he didn't have time to mess around. He had to get it right the first time and move on. So I think that kind of stands to it as well. But I mean, he's a genius and I do think he's had an incredible run. Even when he gets it kind of wrong, it's still interesting, um, which you can't say for a lot of modern directors, certainly, especially in the horror space. Um but yeah, I mean, anyone who doesn't consider him one of the greats, I think, isn't probably isn't really much of a horror fan. Okay, I'm not going to disagree with either. I, of you. Yeah, I, I, and I, I, I think, um, I think Wes Craven is obviously very important within horror, but um, Carpenter just as a filmmaker, yeah, like not not just the director of horror, uh, yeah, like a soldier of Precinct Thirteen, for example, which is already yeah, like, in urban western, yeah. Or, they, Starman, they even, which is one of his most financially uh, successful And he's done New sci-fi York, too, yeah. like, you know, so, yeah. and mastered it. Yeah. Yeah. Even 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 kind of like like thing things that um well, actually, they live, for example, or uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Yes. Yeah, I was going to mention Big Trouble in Little China. Like like how big that was for 
kind of yeah it's an big, like it's an 11 film run, which he has which is absolutely incredible spanning from assault on priest i haven't watched big trouble in little china recently it's maybe re- <laughs> maybe there's reasons why it's not like kind of spoken about fair uh as much i don't know um but um yeah the, he, he's he, like he he's achieved so much outside of the genre as well yeah Whereas on the other hand, Craven, if you look at his work outside of horror, it's typically like Music of the Heart, which is the 1999 awards bait drama starring Meryl Streep, which nobody remembers. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love the, yeah, uh, sorry, Bernice appears to be trying to remember Music of the Heart. Huh. I know he did Elvis, but I had no idea he did a musical with, um, with Streep. No, C- Craven, Craven. Um, Carpenter did Elvis. Oh, Craven. Yeah. Oh, that makes more sense. Sorry, that's why. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I yeah thought, no, Carpenter I thought, did yeah. Elvis. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, I was, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> Got right there. Um, and before we jump into the three questions to get us started, just to get a temperature check before we jump in, Andrew, for the next twelve episodes, I am subjecting you to this franchise. Right. Um, I have. I, I'm getting already getting a vibe that it's going to be like those twelve weeks we spent watching Martin Scorsese movies. <laughs> but what? No, what was no, your pre familiarity like, with the Halloween franchise? My my familiarity with it was, I think, in like 2017, I had seen this movie. Uh, that we'll be talking about uh, Halloween. I think it it may have been on a date. I'm not sure. In 2017. I think so yeah. Nice. Okay. And I, I think it was it was. Um, I think at work it it was like a sports and social thing. Okay. Where just like you know you uh, to uh, where it and it it was it was it was one of those kind of. Uh, small cinemas. Do you know there's one in like Dublin too? Yeah, yeah. The, basically, the private cinemas, the ones yeah, where like the yeah. exhibitors used to host press screens and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, it was something like that where there was kind of like a that few people awesome. from work and then other people from other yeah. groups, I guess. Yeah. Um, okay. But was that the extent of it? So, have you seen any of the other Halloween films? Zero. Wow. Fantastic! This is going to be. A oh, great... sorry, I've I've seen. No, Rob... no, no! But but for the purposes of now, for, <laughs> for this conversation, pur- yeah, yeah. I I like I I I I could probably reveal that I've <laughs> watched at least one more. <laughs> uh, now watch more uh, another one. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Which which I which I which I watched before I. Um, you watched before watched this, this one. Yeah, that time because With... be, uh, because it was available more readily. Yes. Yeah. Okay. All right, that will be a conversation that we will have in about three weeks. We'll have that conversation, Andrew. Well, is it, um, yeah, it was on... Um, Netflix. It's and, on Netflix. Exactly. And was readily available. Yeah. And I think listeners know that you are talking about Rob Zombie's Halloween reboot. <laughs> yeah. So I don't think, I don't know why we're dancing around that. Um, all right, so before we jump into the Spore Zone, three questions to get us started. So Joey, do you think John Carpenter's Halloween belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made yes 100 percent. yes i think it's one of the best horror movies ever made i mean it's my favorite but yes absolutely and bernice yes concur absolutely yep (laughs) and andrew this is this is full house yeah like like i i i think there's a very good argument i think like horror movies need to be on the list and i think like the this this is like uh certainly one of the best horror movies I've, I've, I've ever seen. And, 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 and one of, and, and just a terrific movie. Mm. Yeah. 
It's know, just a great movie, not, not just a great it horror movie. It is just yeah. a great movie, exactly. Mm-hmm. And and it's fantastically well made. I I think the 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 cast is excellent. Obviously, Jamie Lee Curtis. I I think Donald Pleasance has this kind of like weird <laughs> kind really of, donald pleasant yeah, weird that, that's charm. an adjective you would yeah, use um and um no it, it's 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 tremendous and it's very uh, seminal as well mm. in term in terms of kind of what it means for uh the history of of of, of, of the genre yeah 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 and what what about yourself darren and and maybe your own relationship with with um uh, halloween i know you're 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 a freddy <laughs> i'm a freddy guy oh, I'm a fre- <laughs> like that that is the thing where like if i had been asked to pick a horror franchise we would cover for halloween i would have said freddy originally but, but nobody asked you but nobody asked me <laughs> but also um we covered chucky earlier in the year and i feel like doing freddy and chucky close together yeah. <laughs> you kind of took the wind out of the sails on that one we can't we can't do the two comedy horror guys uh, in the same year in next year it's freddy and friday the 13th oh god <laughs> oh we're already committed to next year <laughs> no, no. I like, I like, oh, god. andrew has already willed this into being i'm um, not even much of a I, I i like like i i i was about to say i'm not much of a horror yeah we did person, chucky because of you um, <laughs> I'm 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 probably just not much of a film person, am I? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just Aaron's friend. <laughs> the podcast has slowly beaten that out of you. Any enjoyment that you want to I think you admitted recently that you don't like movies. <laughs> yeah. No, sorry. Yeah, uh, I, I, you're like you're like the Simon Mayo. You're the layman, and he comes along and he's like, "Here's why this movie's great," and then you're like, "Meh, I don't know, maybe." Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 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 What's next? <laughs> Yeah. I don't know about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's no yeah. Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I I have my I have my broadcasting career to fall back. On. <laughs> <That is fair>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you are the star power. People tune in. That's why it's Andrew Quinn and Darren. Yeah, I'll tell you a story about Top of the Pops in the seventies. <laughs> we knew everything. Can you tell me the no, story? No. Oh, oh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so I, I am a, I'm a Freddy guy. I think that like pound for pound, the Nightmare on Elm Street series is probably the best of the classic four slasher franchises. Really? In the, Sorry. Yes. I, I watched them all. Really? I watched them all in one go in a marathon at the PCC in London, and I think I probably slept through like at least two. Well, to be fair, that is where Freddy can get you. <laughs> just just very quickly on the Nightmare on Elm Street thing, two reasons why we're not doing it, and two reasons why I love it. Both of which end up being ultimately interlinked. First of which is, as we've already mentioned, we already did a comedy horror franchise, so I don't know that we could do Chucky and Freddy in the same year without kind of tiring ourselves out and repeating ourselves and doing the same thing over and over again. I think we get a juxtaposition in terms of like the talky one and the strong silent one, and I think that works and that's maybe an interesting avenue to take. Mm. The second reason that I didn't want to do A Nightmare on Elm Street uh, was the pretentious one, which is like... The Nightmare on Elm Street movies start late. They launch in 1984. So by that stage, the Texas Chainsaw franchise, the Friday the 13th franchise, the Halloween franchise, they're all underway at that moment in time. Yeah. You've had three Halloween movies before you have the first Nightmare on Elm Street. And those Nightmare on Elm Street movies, 
there's only eight of them in total because like many of the new line cinema like horror monsters they end up being like caught in legal battles which means you can't make more crappy sequels to them and they end up being quite constrained chronologically where i think like the first six of them happen over like seven or eight years between 1984 and 1991-92 and then you get you know two sequels after that you get like the wes craven's new nightmare and then you get the reboot but they are relatively contained and relatively late and so i don't think that you can use them to chart a history of American horror. I think, like, they reflect the Reagan era. They're very much anchored in a particular place in time, whereas, you know, the, the Halloween franchise, you know, intersects with all sorts of trends. It, it spans all sorts of decades. It is, you know, you can use it to chart a history, you know, not at all pretentiously, but you can use it to chart a history of American horror, or at least American mainstream horror. Which ties into the first of the two reasons that I actually quite like the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is that it's short and it's manageable. Like, as a result, it doesn't run forever in the same way the Texas Chainsaw franchise does or the Halloween franchise does. So it's able to keep a more consistent level of quality. Because generally speaking, as we talked about, the way that these franchises work is it tends to be a downward slope. So the longer you run, the steeper that slope becomes. And obviously your average goes way down because you're never going to hit the high of that first movie. Mm -hmm. So that's the first reason that I quite like the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is because being relatively few of them they end up being relatively high quality and that's the second one which is that like i don't know that there is any movie in the nightmare on elm street franchise that is as good as say the first halloween the movie we're talking about today or even say the texas chainsaw massacre which is a masterpiece of american cinema yes i don't know that any of the eight nightmare on elm street movies are as good as those how and ever I also don't think that any of the major slasher franchises have two movies in them as good as the original Nightmare on Elm Street and Wes Craven's New Nightmare. What about Dream? What about Dream Warriors? Dream Warriors is great as well. Fair, 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 fair. Three movies as good as the original Nightmare on Elm Street, Dream Warriors and Wes Craven's New Nightmare. I think those are legitimately great movies. And if you step outside that and you you drop the standard from great to simply, like, good, I think you throw in, like, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge is a legitimately good slasher movie. And I think Nightmare on Elm Street 4, the Rennie Harlan movie, is a legitimately good slasher movie. Which means, like, your batting average is your first four movies are great, and your first attempted reboot is also great, leaving just five, six, and the inevitable, like, 2000s reboot. Mm. And and I don't know any horror franchise that has, like, three great movies and two good movies. And also, like, the kills are, are also more inventive as well, I think. Well, obviously and, Chucky. Ha! Oh, yeah, true, Chucky. Well, he said, no, he wants, said the classic uh, ones, so Chucky's okay. a bit newer. Yeah. You know, like, the Chucky and Scream are newer, yeah, absolutely. You we, don't we include, yeah, yeah. It's definitely better than, definitely better than Friday the 13th, I'll give you that. Uh, but the, the thing about Chucky is it's, like, high ceiling, sorry, low ceiling, high floor kind of thing. Mm. Or I don't know that any Chucky movie is as good as, say, Halloween or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But no Chucky movie is as bad as Halloween's 4 through 6 or, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street's 4. No, let's say 5 and 6. Uh, or any of the Texas Chainsaw Massacres that aren't 1 and 2. Like, mm. yeah, that would be my argument for Chucky. Chucky, you know, he's consistent. He's reliable. He gets, You know what you're getting from the Chucky movie. Even with Seed of Chucky, which is insane. That movie kind of works because there's a consistent level of quality. Whereas, Our tree, which people don't don't yeah. uh, don't like, yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think we talked about it when we talked about like that movie specifically. Like, I don't like Child's Play 3, but I think it is a perfectly serviceable slasher sequel. Like, I think it's maybe about as good or as bad as something like, say, Halloween 4. It is not as bad as something like Halloween 5, Halloween 6, or Halloween Resurrections. Not to tease what you have lying ahead of you in the next couple of months, <laughs> Andrew. Chucky is interesting as well because they started to improve in quality. Like Curse is great, Cult is great, and then the TV yes. series has been so fantastic. So Chucky's unique in that sense as well. Yes, I think I think when we talked about Chucky, I was like, this is probably the only case for, or the rare case where you can say the first one is definitively not the best. Yes. Like with most of these franchises, your default position is the first one is the best. With Texas Chainsaw, there's a there's a solid argument. The first is the only decent one. With all due respect to Texas Chainsaw, too. Mm. Um, but sorry, so my point is that, yeah, that is why I am we a nightmare. We do a guy. season where we talk about Chucky movies. <laughs> <laughs> if only there were an entire season we had done um, where we had talked sorry, about Chucky movies in depth. that's my fault. Um, but yeah, but Halloween, though, yeah, I think this was, a, this was the first of the classic slasher movies that I saw. I had seen Scream before I had seen this because Scream was huge when we were kids. Uh, I was what? nine when that came out so i probably saw it when i was about 10 so i'm guessing i saw this when i was about 11 or 12 i remember this being one of the first movies i bought on dvd i remember being amazed by it being blown away that it was as good as it was despite being a quote-unquote old movie to my 10 year or 12 year old self Mm -hmm. and that it worked and that it kind of hung and stayed with me i did watch some of the sequels when I was younger and I decided that it was not worth the effort. <laughs> At a certain point, I was like, okay, not worth the hassle. I went back when the green movies came out and I rewatched all of them in a row. And I mean, that'll be, we'll talk about that as the series progresses. But I think, yeah, this is... When an, was it, that? What? When was that? Uh, 2018. Okay. So the the way that this works is it's, for listeners who may not be familiar, <laughs> it's one and two are together. Then the third is basically a completely unrelated story that has nothing to do with the larger franchise. Then four, five, and six are like, no, 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 come back, come back, come back, come back, come back. We swear Michael Myers are in these movies. In fact, Michael Myers is in the title of these movies. That's how you know he's in these. Come back, come back. <laughs> uh, and then basically Scream comes out and they're like, what if we did like a movie like Scream, but it was also a Halloween? <laughs> then they did, what if we did that again, but with Buster Rhymes? <laughs> Uh, And then they were like, okay, that didn't quite work. So what if we do a reboot with Rob Zombie? What if we do a sequel to the reboot by Rob Zombie? Then what if we maybe just let it lie for about nine years? And it's like, hey, Jamie Lee Curtis wants to come back. How about we make that work? Um, That's kind of the life cycle of Halloween in a nutshell. So 2018 would have been my I'm assuming that Rob Zombie uh, was fairly successful for them to want to make a sequel. We'll talk about that at okay, some point sorry. in the future. Um, <laughs> Subterfuge. Yeah, I, I, love, I love the vibes. I could just picking up vibes from Andrew about how he feels about this one other Halloween movie. That I, he I was actually curious. I don't know. Like, I'm, okay. I'm, I'm, just based on the fact that they're two of them. Um, but yes, okay. I think, yeah, it's indisputable. I think it's a Mount Rushmore movie. I mm-hmm. think it's like, if you're charting the history of horror, it has to be there. Horror is underrepresented on the list. I think if you're charting a history of cinema... You can't say Mount Rushmore and not name your Mount Rushmore. Oh. <laughs> Mount but, I mean, but very obviously, we we literally just yeah. ran through them. It's Nightmare on Elm Street, it's Texas Chainsaw, and it's um, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Halloween, and obviously Jason from Friday the 13th. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yes, you Chucky could knock off Freddy, probably, if you want, if you want to get insistent about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, those are the four. Uh, but I think this is 
this is the best of those. This I is think. Lincoln. Yes. <laughs> Not Jefferson. Um, <laughs> all right. And then, Joey, would this be on your own personal 250? Your own 250 favorite movies? Oh, 100%. I think, yeah, I think this is probably my favorite horror movie of all time. I still can't watch it at night if I'm alone in the house. It freaks me out. And I've seen it, like, I remember I saw it in a movie theater slash nightclub in North Carolina. Another time I watched it on Halloween night uh, in the back of a video store in Gainesville, Florida. There were only like 10 seats and this frat bro showed up and kept laughing at everything and everyone got really mad at him. And then at the end he stood up and he was like, well, that was unintentionally hilarious. So that always like stuck in my mind. But even that didn't ruin the experience. Like I just I love it. And every time I watch it, I find something more to love about it. So yes, absolutely, 100%. Probably top 10. And just outraged on Joey's behalf, uh, people who show up at yeah. screenings of classic horror films. Joey, oh. I had an experience where I'd been waiting my entire life to see The Shining on the big screen. And also it was the extended edition of The Shining, which mm. I'd never seen. And went to the IFI thinking, you know, IFI generally, the audience are generally quite respectful, you know, particularly the Or you can complain there. if they're not and they'll do something. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But I could not really complain. But The Shining's a very quiet film. It's quite... You know what I mean? There's obviously the music, but a lot of scenes are actually quite, you know, to do with silence and the ominousness of that. And an individual, uh, and I know hashtag not all men at the cinema, turned up with two two giant uh, containers or bags of crisps and then conceded to eat them at the loudest way. It was like he was eating broken glass. And by the time he finished one bag, I was about 40 minutes in and I was going, well, okay, he saved his life. He stopped it. And then a moment later, he pulls out another and it's a family-sized pack, people. It's a family-sized pack. Jesus. And I don't know, but some people should not be allowed into the cinema. There ends my rant. What was the question, actually? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you feel about the IFI well, now your, selling popcorn? Worse. Worse. <laughs> oh, yeah. What was that backlash about? I am going to write a letter to the Irish Times and sign it, Disgusted of Dublin 8. Oh. I, I, I don't think people should know. I'm, you know, if people... But it annoy it does annoy me. But I have a bit yeah. of misphonia, so generally humans annoy me anyway. Um, I just think so. there's way there's so much worse, like people taking photos and people just t- checking the time every two minutes, and just people full on nachos are worse. They as well. definitely are because they're so crunchy. Like popcorn is reasonably soft. Yeah. I mean, they do popcorn in the lighthouse, and I've never, you know, it doesn't smell. As well. No, you exactly. Know, nachos are absolutely rotten. Um, but yeah, two fifty, absolutely. I mean, I would put it. Um, not maybe not the top ten, but pretty close to the top ten. So, and I, my top ten horror films, absolutely. So yeah, I mean, come on, it's Halloween. I just can't believe that guy, Joey. I'm, like, I hope you ganged up at him like the like, people in the later. We absolutely did. And, you know, <laughs> meted out rough justice. Several hate later Halloween movies. Yeah, I don't know how he even found it. Like how he even stumbled apl- across this place, and literally there were ten seats in there. Because I mean, it was it was the back of a video store, yeah. and the guy was so lovely, and he'd made his own popcorn, and it was Aww. just so it was such a cool atmosphere. And when he like when he said that, I turned to him and I was like, "Didn't you come here alone?" And he just kind of said nothing because he was like, uh, but no one's laughing. No one's making any noise. You know, yeah, you think it's stupid. Then leave. How did you even find this place? <laughs> like, but yeah, that is definitely a thing, especially at classic horror movies. Uh, ironically. Yeah. Pe- people that think they're cleverer than the material because they're in 2023 or whatever. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, gone, you know, I always find as well. Yeah. But like even with the modern horror movies, because obviously, as as you say, you know, the horror audience will always show up, which is brilliant. But there's a divide between the Friday night crowd and the hardcore people. And like 
I think the Friday night crowd, sometimes if a movie's too intense, something like Midsommar, I think a lot of them start to make fun of it because they're actually quite scared. And they don't want to let on, let on to their friends. So whenever I notice people doing stuff like that, I think to myself, hmm, it's a bit much for them. You know, they were expecting Insidious, the red door, and they got Midsommar and they don't know what to do or like the witch or something. Well, that's the, the classic is the A24 F score yes. where you know you've made a good, proper metaphor um, <laughs> if uh, you get an F cinema score. I will say that, yeah, one of my... I remember going to see the 1978 Dawn the Dead in the IFI and mm. yeah, with... with my partner at the time and just them not really vibing with it which was one of the most uncomfortable experiences of my life <laughs> um all right then and andrew would this be on your own personal 250 your own 250 favorite film um i mean maybe oh it's certainly in 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 with a shadow you're not a horror guy is the thing yeah but like i i want to you know have um movies like this like that you know well this is quite an accessible horror i think like it's not not to get too spoiler in terms of talking about like the movie itself it's not excessively gory no it's not excessively lurid it's not even particularly purient i don't think yeah it feels sophisticated yeah yeah and i i think like laurie strode achieves that because it's as bernice has said she has that kind of intelligence that kind of radiates um off of her yeah I, I hate that we're we're kind of like turning this into kick the Friday 13th franchise, but I, I do honestly think that a lot of like the negative connotations that slashers accrued in the 1970s came in part from like Friday the 13th looking at the success of like Halloween and going, we can do that, but can understand what it is that makes that a good movie. Why? Mm. Uh, where like, mm-hmm. is it uh, Sean Cunningham, the director of um like the first Friday the 13th movie, he made... And this is one of the things where I want to say Andrew will be very curious to hear this. That will make Andrew feel very uncomfortable. But he made what were called white coaters uh, back in the day, which was where we discussed uh, I Am Mellow Yellow on our episode covering Autumn Sonata, which was the Swedish pornography movie that was like accepted as an art house movie in the United States, which opened the door in terms of allowing pornography to be screened in cinemas in the late 60s and early 70s. Midnight movies? Not even that. No, no, it's because they were cultured. It's because it was <laughs> foreign and it was seen as sophisticated. It wasn't uh it wasn't filth or smut. It was like it's what it's European. Thank you very much. It's it's yeah. It's a it has a virtue, it has artistic merit. And so <laughs> <laughs> my eyes are reading the words, thank you very much. But what happened after that was you got what were called white coaters. And white coaters were movies where you could be excluded from pornography classification if your film had educational value. So what they would do is they would have a man in a white coat show up at the start of a movie, explain that what you're about to see is actually an instructional video, and then he would walk off. And that would be it. So Sean Cunningham um, did basically two of those movies. The first of which, sorry, the second of which is called Together, and the first of which is, I think, is it Scenes from a Marriage or Lessons from a Marriage? Uh, and basically, he was the guy that they brought in to make Friday the 13th, which perhaps explains a lot about the luridness of those movies, uh, which I find interesting. All right. And for myself, yeah, this is we've talked on this podcast before about like your own 250 being like something you don't have to justify. And I think that like my 250 would probably have like six Carpenter movies on it. 
Mm. Um, and I think that, yeah, this would easily be up there. I don't even know if this Escape is my favorite. Escape from New book. York would be there, wouldn't it? Escape yeah. from New York. Um, obviously, They Live, um, Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, The Thing, um, probably Prince of Darkness, In the Mouth of Madness. Like, it's, yeah. it's so It'd be up there with, like, because you're the, the, a big Nolan guy. Yeah. And presumably you 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 have a similar number of Nolan movies, and uh, yeah. uh, uh, being that he does he hasn't made as many movies. That's it exactly. Like Carpenter was making nearly a movie a year during the eighties, which yeah. is incredible. And of those movies, the worst of them were pretty good. Like <laughs> the worst of them were like the Stephen King Killer Car movie, which was like ten times better than the Stephen King Killer Car movie makes it sound. Um, so yeah, absolutely. This would be on my top. Or it's better than the killer truck movie that Stephen King himself directed, as he admitted <laughs> subsequently on a lot of cooking. Maximum overdrive. <laughs> Maximum overdrive. Yeah. yeah, it's it's often like the the which I once showed to a child I was babysitting, and the child was not very happy and went into hysterics and his pants were cold. That's my my babysitter murders story. <laughs> you killed the child's innocence. Talk us through the decision making. I was. It would have been a bad Laurie Strode. I would have left those kids behind. You know, <laughs> they were too slow. <laughs> Natural selection. You know, sorry kids. <laughs> you just gotta outrun them. You can't reach the stop button on the VCR. Yeah. Is, <laughs> is it like like the is the more are 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 the more faithful. Stephen King adaptations, the the ones that aren't as good. I don't even know if it's that, but yeah, the ones that he has more involvement with, the ones that he has more control over, like tend to be dream, worse. Like his Shining, catchers, yeah, th- yeah, or was... or the um the Shining miniseries that he made yeah. to prove Kubrick wrong, famously. Um, <laughs> like, yeah, uh, but that said, I think like if you if you've got somebody who can handle him, like say Andy Machete's It, I think, or It Chapter One is quite good. It Chapter Two is n- not really great, but that's the price you pay Aww. for having a very good at chapter one is like you just take the parts that don't work and put them in the other movie. Um, but I think even say Mike Flanagan's um, Dr. Sleep, I think, is really good. And the thing that's incredible about that is that like it placates King. Like it's a movie that manages to pay tribute to like Stanley Kubrick's The Shining while also being a movie that Stephen King does not want to see like burnt um, for the mere act of existing, which is fascinating. I think maybe because Flanagan, and I don't, I don't mean this as a critique; it's an observation that both Flanagan and King use sentiment a lot, and I don't think Stanley Kubrick does. And I think that's what <laughs> King likes about Flanagan, and what Flanagan kind of re- there's a humanity there, I suppose, yeah. which can become saccharine in some cases. But I think Doctor Sleep just about gets it right. Whereas the ending of Hill House, uh, don't get me started on the TV show, <laughs> uh, is a total abomination. But that's another, that's another <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's the coming Halloween 2025 apparently at the way we're scheduling yeah. this and Joey if listeners have not seen the original Halloween which is now streaming as Andrew said on Lionsgate Plus which has a seven day free trial uh, would you recommend that they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device absolutely yeah I mean I don't know I, I'm such a horror person that I can't fathom why someone wouldn't have seen it <laughs> I'm just like but why wouldn't they have seen Halloween what kind of a life have they lived but then, you know, we have Andrew, so I don't I don't know. My, I had seen Halloween. Just right? none of the other ones. I know, ones. but if you hadn't, I wouldn't have been surprised. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you'd said no, well, you know, I never got around to it, I would have been like, it's, okay. It's such a disappointment when all you want to say is, 
what do you mean you haven't seen it? And then somebody has seen it. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> moving on my, my, i can't chastise you yeah. <laughs> my, like can, can i just mention sorry this is a tangent but one of my favorite things that the halloween films later halloween films facilitate beginning with three is it gives up americans an opportunity to really badly mispronounce sound <gasps> yes yeah, sam hayne I, sam hayne I think you mean sam my good yeah. friend yeah. sam hayne um <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, so it's, like, it's, it's the it's the Celtics, you know, the Celtic tradition <laughs> yeah. of Samhain. Um, I mean, yeah, we will get oh, to it's bad. With their Gaelic, there, there, there is maybe an argument to be made that like Halloween three season of the witch is a hate crime of some description. Um, mm. Yeah, maybe I would agree with that. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> um, <and> it's, <laughs> You'll see. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think like my sister when the new Halloween movies came out, the David Gordon Green ones came out. My sister was like, so there are like. 10 of these already do i need to watch any or all of them and i find that really fascinating with the halloween franchise where you're like well it depends on which sequel you want to end up at Mm. it's like a choose your own adventure when it comes to how you watch these movies um so it's like yeah this is this is the only one that they all really keep apart from three because even the the gordon green ones jettison two yes um i guess and obviously you know even the zombie one is very clearly referencing this one in its structure Mm. even if it's clearing the continuity Oh, yeah. yeah, like, sorry, we're not talking about the zombie no. one. No. But, uh, not yet, Andrew. <laughs> not yet. Hold it now. But Bernice, what about yourself? Would you recommend, if listeners have not seen John Carpenter's 1978 Halloween, they pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? I would say absolutely. And I forgot to mention, even though you had kindly set me up for it earlier, um, if it, uh, the suburbs are one of the great American horror settings. And this is the film, it's certainly not the only film that does this at a roughly around the, the same sort of decade, but it really establishes American suburbia as this really resonant site of fear and of, of the uncanny mm. in a way that's rarely been equaled. And even if you watch a later suburban horror film like It Follows, It Follows is hugely influenced by Carpenter's Halloween, amongst other things. So I think particularly if you're someone who's interested in in depictions of landscape and the built environment and the relationship between environment and anxiety, Halloween's a really fantastic example of that because there's all those, you talked about the cameras earlier, there's all those long, slow Panavision tracking shots that just give you this absolute sense that this is a, a site of dread where mm. it, it looks okay on the surface, but it's, I mean, even as the opening sequence of the film, a child killing his own parents, spoiler alert, suggests something is very badly wrong here. And I think, for, you know, there's very few films have topped that and the economy with which he does that. So even if you're not necessarily hugely interested in horror, if you're at all interested in landscape and cinema, it's just, it's superb. Yeah, well, we will undoubtedly talk about the suburbianness of it later on. And luckily we have an expert in the suburban Gothic on this podcast. <laughs> um, and Andrew, <laughs> would you recommend that listeners pause the podcast and stream it to a local device? I would, yeah, yeah. See, see what all the fuss is about. I, I don't think there are that many people who would be disappointed. Um, and yeah, absolutely. So, with that in mind, we will segue neatly into the spoiler zone. Spoiler zone. <laughs> so, Bernice, what is John Carpenter's Halloween about for you? Um, it's about horror coming home, but unlike football and the English. <laughs> um, <laughs> Oh, here we go. <laughs> I'm taking out a folding chair. There's also be a side of dread for those of us who, who don't like to hear our neighbors singing for like three weeks. Um, no, no, good for them, you know. Um, but uh, no, long story short, I would say, um, yeah, it is. It's about the idea of, of horror coming from within. It's about it's about um, it's about the nuclear family as a site of of fear 
uh, it's about the idea that you might think you're safe in your in your cozy, um, idyllic, you know, economically prosperous little environment, but there's something something has gone wrong and you haven't even really noticed. Um, and uh, all you've got is a pop-eyed, civil-eyed, um, brilliant English character actor to warn everyone. Um, I hope, I will hope say, I do hope we get a chance to talk about the world's most unprofessional psychiatrist in both of the films I'll be talking about with you guys, uh, Dr. Loomis. Uh, <laughs> he looms large. <laughs> but yeah, it's about local horror, I guess. It's about horror coming, you know, the call is coming from inside the house. I know that's a whole other slasher film from the same period, <laughs> When a Stranger Calls, but it's very much <laughs> about that idea of, um, you know, the monsters are, are internal rather than external, which is really what the Amer- the suburban gothic is about. Um, so, sorry, I didn't just want to give you a straightforward plot synopsis there because I thought no, people would have uh, figured it out. Uh, uh, dude, <laughs> there's stabbing. There's a dude and there's stabbing. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's got a boiler suit. He's got a knife. What more do you need? You know? and, a, and a William Shatner mask from The Devil's Reign. And a um, Shatner mask. I think... Um, <laughs> I okay, don't Andrew. know why I'm, I'm dwelling on this, but I feel like Frank Skinner and David Baddiel, Tree oh, Lion. This is where we're going. Okay, that, right. that 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 it is a song about like following a team who's never going to win anything ever again, and and but that it it, it they feel like that it got <laughs> appropriated by. It's like Blair's kind of um, uh, boys and girls song. It's like that that was supposed to be making a fun parody of, that of kind of like culture. Ibiza kind of club anthems and, and became, it became one. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I beg your pardon, but no, I think you are right, Bernice. I, 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 I think, I think they, they, they sorry. Oh, no, what the fuck? Wait, sorry. Why, why am I talking about that? I don't know why I got stuck on that. So yes, Bernice, you are right. The thing you're seeing from Paul's coming home is a distraction. Anyway, work, to work through the itemized list this of points why that you I'm made. Here. <laughs> Let's talk about the suburbsness of it, right? Because again. You mentioned that it's happening in horror around this time, but if you go back and you look at the classic horrors, the horrors that we've kind of mentioned so far in discussions, you have kind of two basic strands. Again, this is the the argument I'm going to make as a layman that may turn out to be completely incorrect. But you have two strains of horror that are unfolding in parallel in the late 60s into the 70s. The first of which are the urban horrors, the movies. You talk to us about The Exorcist, where like so much of that movie is, it's terrifying living in a city, the sounds of the city, the anonymity of the city. Mm. That arguably goes on to something like Rosemary's Baby. You're living in a tenement. You don't know who's around you, all this sort of stuff. And then on the other- Body Snatchers, which is a superb example of that. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um, I'd just like to mention that film wherever possible. It's great. It's fantastic. And then the other strand you have is the rural strand, where something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Manos, The Hands of Fate, a film that is clearly (laughs) regarded as a classic. But the idea of you go out into the middle of nowhere and you find yourself surrounded by monsters and America is a place popular. Yeah, The Hills of Eyes, which I think came out the year before this as well. Yeah, yeah, that sort of stuff. Uh, Whereas what's interesting about this is it situates that horror in the suburbs. And the suburbs are this space that Americans kind of fled to in the wake of the Second World War, where you had this kind of like economic prosperity as you had minorities coming into the cities, you had white flight literally moving out. And again, Carpenter, not to put too fine a point on this, Carpenter was born in New York. When he was young, he moved to Kentucky and he's talked about like being in Kentucky during the 1960s, during the civil rights movement and experiencing firsthand like how strange it was as a liberal, you know, a New York liberal family watching the behavior of like white people around black people and seeing that racism firsthand. Uh, And it is kind of interesting that you have that idea here, which is 
these families presumably took their kids out of the cities so that they would be safe to be away from, you know, the stereotypical cliches of urban crime, violence, drugs, temptation, corruption, all that sort of stuff. And instead, as you point out, it ultimately turns out that the evil comes from within, Mm. that it's the Myers boy who was born just down the block. But it's not even what's interesting about the first Halloween is like, Michael Myers doesn't even seem particularly special. There's that sequence where they go to the grave, to Judith's grave, where he's still mm. in the headstone. And the gravedigger starts talking about this story from one town over, which is similarly graphic, where this guy went home with his family with a hacksaw. And there is, I think Carpenter himself has said that like every town in America has that. I think Jamel Bowie has made the point that it's quite pointed that despite the fact that the real Haddonfield was in New Jersey and it was shot in Pasadena, that this is set outside Chicago which is one of the cities or one of the areas that experienced the most dramatic white flight, where Mm. I think Southside in Chicago went from being like 96% white in 1950 to being 96% black in 1980 because all those families fled out to suburbs in places like Livingston, uh, which is where this is set. And it's kind of, again, it's something very effective and uncanny in the idea that the parents took these children out and just left them there this is very much like jaws this is a story about parental failure <laughs> and like even i think you were correct to single single out jaws as a point of comparison there's the moment where like the sheriff says look this just doesn't happen here you know what haddonfield is haddonfield is smiling families it's playing children mm. and you're telling me that they're lining up for a massacre which is a line that could have come from jaws it's this idea that you have a community that is just blissfully ignorant of the fact that there's something very very rotten at its core i think there's something very interesting in that about 1978 but sorry joey well it's it's referenced even more explicitly in halloween uh 2018 when the sheriff goes what are we gonna do cancel halloween (laughs) (laughs) which is such a fantastic line because i mean obviously that's yeah it's a reference to jaws but also yeah like what is he supposed to do you know what i mean does he have a suit with little pumpkins on it a little tie (laughs) (laughs) you don't know how much investment there is in the local halloween like like mayor no he's dressed like a cliched sheriff with like a big hat and everything (laughs) he's great he's a really he's a great character Um, and 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 just before we move off the uh suburban kind of theme here i i think it, it is worth noting I mean, obviously, before Carpenter made this, he made Someone's Watching Me, which is basically this, but set in a city. So the transposition from city to suburb feels very deliberate. But also even you have the idea of that that sequence near the climax where Michael is attacking and like Laurie runs out into the street looking for help and there's nobody around and there's nobody around because the movie has no budget for extras, but it creates this sense of like isolation. These kids are completely on their own. Mm. No one's taking care of them. The parents have just vanished into thin air mm. and she runs to, to one of the doors and she she starts banging on it. And and the person inside just turns the light off is one of the scariest sequences in the movie. Yes. Because that person is just choosing to ignore this horror that is happening outside. This woman has run screaming to his door or her door. And the first response is to turn the light off and pretend you don't see it as if you, you're turning away trick or treaters. Mm. And like that reminded me a lot of like the Kitty Genovese stuff, which, you know, we should note that the Kitty Genovese stuff has been disproven somewhat in the years since it was first reported. But in 1978, it was largely reported as, you know, this horrible thing that had happened. Uh, Kitty Genovese, who was like attacked and murdered uh, in, you know, in the shadow of a giant tenement building in New York City. 
as everybody stood by, listened to the sounds of her screams and did nothing to help her. That has since been disproven, but that is a story that is kind of associated with like urban decay in the cities. This is how the city numbs you. It makes you, you know, sort of indifferent to human suffering. And here in Halloween, you have Carpenter like play that cliche beat for beat where the evil of the city, the worst thing about the city, the anonymity, the fact that you don't know your neighbors, the fact that nobody cares about anybody, the fact that, you know, crime happens and people are indifferent to it. All that stuff didn't stay in the city when these families abandoned it because it's not inherent to the city. It's inherent to the human condition. They brought it with them and it is just as likely to happen here as it was over there. What like, they are afraid of in the city is really in themselves. I I, I thought that was that was very good. But sorry, sorry, Joey, I think I cut you off there. Apologies. But no, I think, I mean, I completely agree with everything you said, but I also think it's a very specifically female fear, or at least to me, like there are so many near misses where we know how much danger the characters are in and they have no idea. And I think that really plays into how as a woman you always have to be on high alert because you're essentially never safe. You know, you're never safe when you're walking around because so much of this movie happens in daylight. That's what you forget. Like there's very, very little of it that's actually set at nighttime. And even though, you know, nobody major dies until about an hour in, it's kind of just random killings, which whatever. It's Laurie who senses immediately that something is off. She's like, that man is watching us. That man is following us. And her friends are like, eh, whatever. You know what I mean? This, as you said, this stuff doesn't happen here. And I think as well, since Bernice mentioned Donald Pleasance, I think even though, you know, Laurie is so intrinsic to the story, I think it's so important that Loomis, he seems so terrified and he keeps telling them, no, this is a big problem. Like we have to do something this isn't enough. What you've done already is not enough. And he says, like, this isn't a man, you know? I think that's very important as well as that this outsider is trying to convince all these people that, yeah, you assume you're safe. You assume it's just a person, but it's not. You know, it's a very, very real danger. We should probably talk about the gender dynamics here because obviously, again, you mentioned um, the final girl. Oh, yeah. And like, this is one of the formative texts when it comes to that as well. And there's a lot been written about the virginal Laurie Strode surviving while her more sexually active friends don't, which, by the way, tends to ignore the fact that Bob is one of the shape's victims here as well. It's not just <laughs> women. Yeah, the male who... victims always get overlooked in this kind of analysis. Yeah. This early oh, yeah. slasher yeah. analysis, it's <laughs> often quite reductive. Not um, necessarily Clover, but I think some of Clover's... Uh, predecessors contemporaries yeah Yeah, no it it absolutely is but as well as that i mean there's also the whole argument to be made of is the stalking random because you know obviously it's made explicit in the later films and then the modern trilogy undoes it again that he's her brother but there's that moment where he sees her outside the house and when i was watching it this time i was thinking wait does he follow her because he recognizes her because he's like hey that's the woman who was at my house (laughs) that seems to be implied it's animal it's animal instinct like he's also exactly Exactly. He's also fixated not just on Laurie, but on the little boy who obviously, Tommy, yes. who clearly a lot reminds of suggests that he kind of reminds him of himself. I will say too that yes. I think one of the things that Halloween does picks up on from earlier like suburban gothic films, including one that's kind of forgotten about, which is incredible, is a film by Peter Bogdanovich uh, called Targets from 1968. Boris Karloff. Uh, yeah, it's an incredible film. And basically it's about old horror kind of being represented, this incredibly dignified and moving performance by Boris Karloff. By uh, who ends up facing off essentially against this incredibly troubled, uh, psychotic young man from the suburbs 
who's just murdered his family, some random neighbours and his wife, and he's going on a killing spree. He's It's loosely inspired by the Charles Whitman um, sniper, University of Texas sniper attack, one of the first sort of modern mass shootings. Mm. Um, but that idea of the suburban, well-bred, well-educated young white guy who is literally the boy next door, this guy still lives at home with his parents in, in Targets, being the face of new horror and being all the more terrifying because there's actually... I mean, obviously the Halloween films sort of gloss over this in different ways as the franchise goes on, that there's nothing supernatural about him. There's just this profound mm. and incomprehensible kind of wrongness. Yeah. And I think that idea is something that unfortunately, due to a lot of recent events in the US in particular, that idea of the young troubled white man uh, who is actually the biggest threat to his own community and to other kids in his own community is something that I think Halloween in a weird kind of way anticipates. But I think Halloween is very much operating the same tradition as Targets where it's really important. He is, it's literally set up in the first five minutes. This is not some, you know, uh, killer from the city who's escaped. He has escaped from an asylum, but he is, as I said earlier, he's coming home. Yeah. We know that he is literally a child of this neighborhood. I think it always gets me is that he's not even that old. He's 21 years old if yeah. you work out his age. Yeah. Um, so he's literally only a few years older than the young the young people that he's killing. Yeah. So it, it's something that's, it, it happens in a lot of, uh, I think, uh, really interesting suburban Gothic texts. And I think, again, Halloween is incredibly influential in the way that, particularly those kind of gender dynamics. I mean, he, of course, he doesn't just kill young women either. He kills sort of, uh, you know, animals uh, and he convenience kill, as well. And he kills and, yeah, men. And, you know, he, mm. eat, he eats a dog. Uh, yes. or, does he eat the dog? I also yep. imagine he's eaten the dog. Yeah, because he's got yeah, hungry. He got hungry. <laughs> he got like, again, got again. This is this is the um, thing maybe to talk about separately about the mythologizing of Michael Myers. Where like he, I in, think he painted the dog. I mean, like, that's terrible. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> did I did a I, really I, bad job of it. I, I think the revelation is it is it is it in two that he and Laurie are brother and sister is yes. on one level a bit of oh uh, you know Star Wars style retcon. Yeah. But on another level, on a thematic level, it actually makes total sense. Oh, yeah, of course it would be her own brother that she doesn't know about. You know, it, it sort of ties in. With, it, it seems with a a, sort of a silly franchise thing uh, to, to drag the arse out of things. But I think it also works on that kind of suburban Gothic level. The killer isn't just from my neighborhood. He's actually part of my own family. Is again, a really common idea in these kinds of narratives. So We, we should mention as well, again, we're talking about like trends in American pop culture this is like the 1970s. This is the golden age of the serial killer. You have like Charles Manson in 69, John Wayne Gacy in 67 through 78, Ted Bundy 74 through 78, John Lee Lucas from 1960 to 1983, the Golden State Killer from 1974, the consciousness and again whenever we do this we are generalizing about horror there are going to be counter examples you can pick like the texas chainsaw massacre but a lot of horror before this a lot of mainstream horror movies like say the omen movies like say the exorcist movies like say rosemary's babies weren't about human horror they were about demonic influence mm. whereas here the real fear is that this is just a dude he's just a normal person ostensibly um, and like to to Bernice's point, I don't think it's intentional, but I think the whiteness is kind of baked into the point where his face is literally painted white. Like, yeah, the, the, the it's very much a comment on like these white families who fled from urban environments, terrified of some external racialized other and then discovered that the real threat was, as you said, the white guy. And that, but the, that that's capturing that greater kind of midlife 
crisis kind of anxiety that you're you you have an idea of what it will take to be like safe happy comfortable um free from anxiety and then you get there and realize that you're not so what you're saying is this is a midlife crisis of the american century kind of yeah andrew (laughs) andrew I was curious how I was going to bring this up, but I think you just gave me like the opening to it. Because we are talking about suburbia. We are talking about American image. We are talking about midlife crisis. And we are talking about this idea of security and safety and having this violated. I think it's very notable that the murder of Judith Myers, which is this original sin, it's the cornerstone of the franchise. It's what makes Michael Myers into Michael Myers. It's what shatters Haddonfield as a community. It takes place on October 31st, 1963 which places it just three weeks before the kennedy assassination (laughs) and like i I think you can kind of draw a clear line between as 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 silly and as goofy (laughs) and as weird as it might sound to say this i think you can draw a clear line between michael myers and the kennedy assassination i mean he was clearly on the grassy knoll (laughs) but no i mean like i think if you look at the halloween franchise as it progresses Like, it becomes increasingly about trying to explain or trying to account for Michael Myers, trying to Mm. figure out why he is, why he does what he does, and constructing these incredibly elaborate conspiracy theories that account for that thing that he did and why he did it, which kind of mirrors the the conspiracism in the American popular psyche as related to the Kennedy assassination. I mean, very famously, like... As Kevin Costner is doing that back into the left, as JFK is releasing in cinemas and becoming a cultural phenomenon, that's when the Halloween movies are at their peak of, well, look, it's about Sam Hain, it's about the cult of Thorn, it's about stars and cults and rituals and tradition and sacrifice. Mm. And, you know, I think that Michael Myers serves as, like, again, that shape, that, that gap, that hole in the American narrative, because, like, that is what the Kennedy assassination was for American self-image. The most important man in the world, a beloved public figure who was watched around the clock, who had incredible security around him, who was seemingly killed in a random act of violence by a nobody, you know? No grand scheme, no grand conspiracy, no master plan. It was just a random act of violence in a place where that shouldn't have occurred that shocked America to its core. Yeah, of that American Camelot. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I I don't, again, maybe I'm reading too much into this. It's also been pointed out that John Carpenter was just 15 years old in 1963. So it makes sense that if you're doing a movie that's set 15 years in the past, that it would work. <laughs> um, but I do, I do like the idea that, yeah, Michael Myers kills Judith um, three weeks before Kennedy gets shot. And it has this horrendous effect on this small community that has thought of itself as isolated from the trauma of the wider world that sees itself as somewhere special as you said kind of camelot and they've never really processed it and never really dealt with it Rewatching it this time one of the things i was really taken with was the film never really steps outside haddonfield right mm. so like when they go to smith's grove the asylum at night right it's in the dark it's rain it's headlights. It's a car park, right? You don't see the inside of the institution in the theatrical cut. You just see Donald Pleasance walking to a car park. The only other scene that takes place outside of Haddonfield is the bit where he finds the guy whose you know boiler suit was stolen. And that is both off a main road and by a train track. So it's literally like there is no world outside of this community. Mm. And over the course of the That's film... That's what that scene was about. What? 
Oh, you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering what what's that? That's literally like this is how he got a a, a, boiler, a suit. boiler suit. Yeah, and, and the scene where he, he breaks into the hardware store. He bro- broke into a hardware store and yeah. stole a hammer and a mask. Yeah, he stole. Yeah, they they conveniently had a mask in the hardware store. It is Halloween. But he never he never. I always wonder he never uses the rope. He stole rope. Was he just keeping that for later? Did he just like rope? Did he make knots to relax? Uh, pause. He Maybe. just you know he he took what he could get. He was like I don't know how the night's gonna well, go. Not to suspend Bob. Like that that's the thing. Like oh you're right. Michael Myers obviously as he goes on becomes like more straight laced and more stoic. Here there's a little and Carpenter has talked about it, it's just a result of him being I came up with bits and those bits went in the script because I wrote the script in ten days. So like Mike <laughs> Myers dressing himself in a white sheet and with glasses he stole, on. He stole like, a Captain Kirk mask, paint spray paint, a, a, a hairbrush, a hammer. Some some, some some white um, paint. Uh, paint. Uh, yeah, <laughs> like but, a lot of what he stole was for the mask. <laughs> but he, he'd been, that's that's true. He'd been planning this for years. That's what that's what like when Donald plays like he's been planning this for years. It's like he knows exactly what mask the he's going to buy. The thing is like how mm. he's driving and walking about all day. Yeah, like it it starts in the in the morning and it starts the previous night. Well, there's that great shot of him going behind him in the car. Yeah, Yeah, well, there's that that wonderful one take thing where like a bracket says goodbye to his kids. They drive off. Uh, What's his face? Loomis comes over. They shake hands. They have a conversation. Then the background of the shot, you see Michael Myers. Again, this is the carpenter is just very good at what he's doing. If you want a craftsman, call a carpenter. Um, But yeah, Mm -hmm. it's but like the thing about it is that Myers here, like he seems so vague and so undefined and so playful, like where he turns the house into this kind of like Halloween fun house where she goes upstairs mm. and she finds is it Annie in the bed with the Judith headstone and Bob yeah. drops out from the ceiling and she opens the the, the, the cabinet I, and the other body is stuffed inside as well. And you're like, how long did Michael spend planning this? Like it really? But also who was it for? Her, Like, presumably. did he know? But yeah, no, I know that. But like, did he know in advance that he was going to have someone come in there and find all that stuff? Do you know what I mean? Or was it for the police? I like the idea of him checking his watch going, she'll be here in 15. She'll be here in 15. Go, go, go. Almost ready. Almost ready. It really (laughs) is as if the three of them are just pranking Glory as she thought they might be. (laughs) Yeah. No, you can understand why, though, because they're so mean to her. (laughs) Yeah, they're so mean and they keep making fun of her. And she believes that her friend is calling her while she's having sex. She's just like, okay, what's the big idea? <laughs> like, I mean, and, but to the point of that that suburbia, I like the movie keeps getting smaller and smaller as it goes. So like, first of all, during the day, she's wandering around and it's streets and it's a town and there it has shops in it and stuff like that. Then at night, it takes place on a street. Then on the street, all of a sudden, there's only three houses. Then there's one house. Then she's in the bedroom. Then she's in the closet. Like, it's just, again, really, really well constructed, like, thriller horror storytelling where the world just seems to compact and get smaller in a way that again i don't know if carpenter was consciously saying anything about suburbia versus just knows how to make a good horror movie one of those two things well i think as well it could be taken as a commentary on how when you're that age your home and the surrounding area is sort of your whole world like i love that shot of him out in the washing because my childhood bedroom looked down on the back garden and I always used to think, oh, my God, if I looked down there and there was a man standing there, it would be terrifying. But that's the kind of image that, you know, you wouldn't think about if you grew up in a massive apartment block in New York City or something. Do you know what I mean? So it's very specific to that area of suburbia and also obviously that age where you're, you know, your world is so small. Do 
to Bernice's point about like the siblingness, and I know we're going to talk about that when we talk about Halloween too, and we'll obviously talk about it when we talk about you know the later movies as well. But like <laughs> for me, does the original Halloween work because it's ra- because it is random because there is no explanation for why Michael does what he does? Like he's like again. This is 1978. I don't think the term serial killer has entered the popular lexicon to describe these men yet. I think it's retroactively applied. Um, I, I'm basing this entirely off watching Mindhunter on Netflix. Um, <laughs> but like, there is a sense of these things are just evil. These people are just, we don't have an understanding of pathology or the psychology that drives these people. They are just fundamentally evil. And like, does the randomness of what Michael is doing, does that make him more scary or less scary than the mythology? So Joey or Bernice? I think more scary. I mean, there's that great line in Scream when they're talking about why Saw isn't scary because it's just gross. And there's something in, inherently scary about a guy with a knife who just snaps. Like when you're a kid and you're watching these movies, you're reasoning like, oh, well, Freddy Krueger's not real. He's not going to come in my dreams, whatever. You know, Jason, whatever, he's a zombie. Well, Michael Myers, it's like, yeah, what's to stop some dude from just stabbing me? You know what I mean? Like, it's, I think the randomness does make it scarier. And again, I'm sure we'll get into it when we talk about Rob Zombie's Halloween. But that kind of, when they, well, when anyone starts over explaining what Michael's motivations are, it makes him so much less scary. We're not supposed to be able to empathize with him. We're supposed to just fear him like Loomis does and be like, we have to stop him because he's just going to keep killing. And it's it's indiscriminate, you know what I mean? He's just killing for the thrill of it, I guess, or because he likes it. But for me personally, anyway, that's much scarier to think that I could just walk out the door and someone could kill me. I was going to say that uh, we'll get to it, I'm sure, but Zombies Halloween is so chronically engineered to be so overdetermined. I mean, how how could this child not turn out to be a serial killer? All that's missing from oh, Zombies Halloween is a scene of bedwetting. I presume that's going to be included in the, you know, director's cut or whatever, but he's animal, killing well, animals. Well, I watched the director's cut. Oh, well, there you go. So, uh, we'll, so have to talk, we'll have to talk about that in the, uh, in the, in the, the next Two hours long. Um, I, I think there are some great horror films where you realise that the horror ultimately is enhanced by the fact that what you've thought are maybe random or unconnected events are actually part of a vast conspiracy. I think Midsommar is a great example of this. The Wicker Man, famously, mm. um, I'll mention it again, and I won't mention it. Uh, what I won't mention three names, but Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That idea that it isn't uh, random occurrences is actually terrifying. But I think it, in like a slasher film in particular, um, you know, like a lot of them as well. You know, the ones that copied the formula of Halloween. You know, like uh, My Bloody Valentine, etc., or Prom Night. Prom Night. They yeah. always had a killer who mm. ultimately had a revelation, like, oh, there was a mine collapse, and the town, the townspeople danced on this very night fifty years ago. And I was trapped in the bubble or uh, there was a terrible prank that killed me or did it on our prom night or whatever. That this hot couple had sex while my son drowned. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Or a lot of the, the sort of the even dodgy ones have like, oh, his mother had sex with men. Uh, and that'll be oh, like, yeah. you know, that's uh, one of the evil slasher course films. So they can't help but go, oh, there's a really bad explanation here. That immediately su- I mean, sucks away, I think, a lot of, I think particularly for slasher films, which should be quite lean and economical. You don't need all of that stuff. Just, just, you know or you don't need as much of it i think as sometimes the filmmakers think audiences want mm. um but nobody told rob zombie that nobody told Lionsgate and that. to shout out ah. black christmas is a great example of that <laughs> sorry like black christmas is right the blame isn't fo- isn't totally at rob zombie's feet <laughs> we, we, we this is why there will be a separate episode to cover that um but i, I again again it this is something that feels like it situates in carpenter's filmography where carpenter is this director who has this incredibly almost nihilistic view of mankind 
Mm. where human beings are just like awful and so many of his movies take place in these kind of like isolated communities the thing is a great example where it's a bunch of men locked together in the snow and it's the worst thing imaginable um something like prince of darkness it's a bunch of dudes locked alone in a basement in a church and it's the worst thing imaginable the idea that like carpenter for all that he is a big lovecraft fan and for all that obviously like in the mouth of madness and the thing owe a lot to lovecraft there is this idea that for him evil is something that we create and is there like we've talked about the camera work how much of this film places you in the subjective perspective of the killer where like if you are watching this in 1978 now today you recognize it instantly because it's just part of the cinematic grammar thanks to halloween Mm. but that opening shot of the movie Mm -hmm. how long does it take you to realize that you're in the perspective of a character rather than just watching what's happening if you're an audience member in 1978 is it when you see the hand open the drawer is that the first time that you realize that oh my god i'm not just observing this movie i am in the movie Mm -hmm. and throughout you have this sound of breathing and so many of like all the establishing shots in the movie you're like am i seeing this through michael's eyes as an audience member Am I watching this? Am I in Michael's head? Like, Michael is a blank shape. He is nothing. He is random. He is abstract. We don't know why he does what he does. But does that mean that I, watching this movie, am Michael? Um, so, Bernice, like, in terms of, like, the audience's relationship to the violence on screen. Yeah, it's it's part of, an important part of the reason why uh, the first uh, academics to take slasher films at all seriously were, by and large, feminist film critics. And... There was a certain degree of of, of profound unease about uh, this kind of visual grammar that was pioneered by films like Black Christmas and Halloween, um, because there was a fear that essentially by placing us so effectively within, literally seeing through the eyes of the killer, um, our breathing being kind of synchronized with the killer, seeing the victims react as if we are the killer, there was a, a concern that you know a predominantly male audience, which is of course the assumption, um, would in a way be vicariously taking part in these. Um, often, you know, or at least perceived to be quite often quite sexualized kind of brutal killings, um, you know, almost a form of symbolic rape and so many because of course slasher films are are incredibly phallic. It's always yeah. you don't you don't get it's killed. With, I'm, I'm automatically doing the gesture here as well. You you, ne- you don't get killed with a gun in a slasher film. It has to be a weapon at close quarters. I mean, Michael doesn't just use a butcher knife. Of course, he strangles people as well. But they're intimate. They're personal kind of killings, and so there was a lot of unease actually. And how does Jason upstage Michael with a machete? He's, yeah. he's got a bigger but, knife. I've <laughs> 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 got to get a bigger knife. Um, but uh, so, mm-hmm. yeah, there was, I think, um, in a way, a slightly overblown, but I think understandable concern about the fact that is the audience, particularly a, a young male audience, and this assumption that maybe young men, slightly, honestly, to be honest, quite condescending, maybe presumption that they would they would be overemphasizing with the killer. Whereas actually, I think, it, who's to say you can't predict what any particular audience member will be at, but it's up to the individual person, you know, their own uh, take on the material. But I think the vast majority of people watching that film will be, uh, it'll be Laurie that they're, that they're worried about. It's Laurie that they're identifying with. And I think if anything, the fact that you're being forced to see through the eyes of the killer is, is actually makes you more concerned for her because the killer almost seems like a kind of omnipotent, kind of vaguely godlike kind of figure who seems to be sort of everywhere. Um, but it's not to minimize, I, do, I can see why, why particularly at a time where American mainstream cinema was, was becoming a lot more sexually explicit and a lot more violent. There had been huge changes uh, from the late 60s onwards, why there was concern about what was perceived to be very sexualized violence. 
um, predominantly. The perception too, wrongly in a lot of cases, but I think understandably was that it was always young women getting killed, whereas actually that's not the case at all. Um, but you could see why some of the most famous kills, of course, used included young women. Um, so, you know, yeah. Yeah. And the, it feels as well like it's, it's not so much vicariously sexual as vicariously punishing like sexuality like well that's the, the puritanical reading yeah, yeah where mm-hmm. the the people who have yeah. sex are punished for it therefore as an audience you get to both enjoy the voyeurism of watching them have sex and then see the righteous punishment the uh, the morality imposed upon them and again the idea of american culture being puritanical about such things and so allowing it to have that, it's that's how into, you show yeah, it yeah yeah but that's how it's presented yeah 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 um and and to to carpenter's credit he he disputes that in large part because he says, well, first of all, I wasn't thinking about it when I was writing it. But his counterpoint is that, like, look, Laurie is just as repressed as um, as obviously Michael is, where she's talking about how she needs to get a date. She ha- she hasn't gone on any dates, but she does think about men th- this way. She does think about boys this way, but she doesn't act on it. So, <clears throat> you know, she, as Carpenter points out, if the knife is a phallic symbol and if slashing is a symbolic gesture, the climax of the movie is her slashing the knife into Michael which is an expression of her repressed sexuality as much as an expression of his. Um, that's Carpenter's reading of it now. He also does say that, look, I also just wanted to make a scary movie. <laughs> um, I just want to mention too that, sorry, I w- oh, and just on the build on that, sorry, Darren, um, that one of the one of the influences that Carpenter's often talk about for this film is one of the most famous supernatural horror f- stories of all time, or is it supernatural, uh, is The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. And in particular, there was a, a remarkable, I think it's, 90, it's 1963 adaptation called The Innocents, starring Deborah Carr, which is essentially about a repressed, in, in, the, in the novella, she, original novella, she's actually only, only uh, in her late teens or early 20s. She's a, a middle-aged woman in, in the, 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 the adaptation of The Innocents. But it's essentially, in the original story, a young woman who's incredibly repressed, who uh, she's, we're told that she's never even looked at herself in a full-length mirror before. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has these very romantic notions. She goes to become a governess in an isolated English uh, 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 mansion. And uh, the scene where Laurie uh, is um, singing to herself um, and she's lamenting sort of, she's clearly a bit upset about the fact that her friends all have dates and she don't. And she's kind of scared of dating, but also it's something that she's clearly interested in. But she's kind of, you know, she's, she's got a lot going on there, I think. And she's singing this song, and the next thing, Michael Myers appears. And that's exactly what happens in The Turn of the Screw, this repressed young woman who's kind of half in love with her mysterious older um, older kind of employer who really has, doesn't really have much to do with the story at all. And she's thinking to herself, it would be nice as a nice fairy tale to meet someone right now, or, or lines to that effect. And the next thing, she sees this ghost. Um, and it's it's when you look at it like that, it's actually very much in this tr- classic Gothic tradition of particularly repressed women um, who kind of have these kind of like uh, unspoken romantic or and sexual longings and whose own kind of neurosis somehow brings to life. Just the two of us. Um, you know, as I say, I'm certainly not the first person to point this out, but it's if you pair it with the turn of the screw, it works incredibly well. And there are actually the innocence um, when the ghosts are famously shown in the innocence. There's one particular scene where a ghost is seen on the other side of a lake in broad daylight, standing there in black uh, while the characters are having a picnic. It's exactly like when Laurie sees um, when Laurie sees um, Michael in those early scenes. So uh, there's fascinating. He's got an awareness of the wider uh, cultural history of these kinds of texts, which I think also lends the film a level of thematic sophistication that, you know, (laughs) not to slag off Friday the 13th, but perhaps. (laughs) Sorry, Mr. Cunningham. Yeah. (laughs) 
With all due respect be, to Sean Cunningham and his white fine, coat. He'd be fine, I'm sure. Yeah. He's, um, <laughs> sure he's but, got lots of money. But the, yeah, and the thing about Carpenter is he studied English at college at the University of North Kentucky. And like he's talked about how like... English degrees, you can do anything with them. Bit of advertising there. <laughs> That's it, exactly. Like the <laughs> opening shot of this movie is doing Touch of Evil, which is incredible. Like that that wonderful long take. He just does it in reverse, where the opening shot of uh, Touch of Evil pushes in on, on the subject. The, the sequence here is a long take and then the camera pulls out from Michael. You get that shot that just pulls back and reveals the entire street and his parents. Like, again, the fact that uh, Carpenter is, is so literate. He does also point out that like... Myers is based on an experience he had when he went to a psychiatric hospital in Kentucky as an undergrad. I don't know why an English student was going to a psychiatric institution, but he says that he saw the most serious mentally ill patients. And there was this kid, he must have been 12 or 13, and he had this look that I associate with Michael Myers. That's where the character came from. But before we wrap up, you want to talk about Loomis, the looming threat. So Bernice, Samuel Loomis, go for it. Yeah, well, I'll maybe I was rambling on there for 10 minutes, so maybe let Joey speak about Lewis first and then I'll... Because <laughs> I have very strong opinions, very pro-Lewis opinions, but I do think he's... I would not have him, want to have him as my own personal medical professional, but you mentioned that you could you got they got Donald Pleasance for $20,000. I would save up $20,000 and hire <laughs> Donald Pleasance for 12 days to follow me around. For five days. Yeah, five days. He was only on set for five days. And say, or five days. Oh, that would still be worth it. $4,000 a day. I think I could justify that and have him say things like, he had the devil's eyes. I, I think that would be... <laughs> 100% I have a it. permit. Um, <laughs> I'm just sorry he's no longer with us. But I'll let Joey go first. What is it? Hey, hey Lani. Get your ass out of there. Get your ass out of there. But no, go ahead. Then. He's so fantastic. He just is. And I, like I said before, I think he really sells how much of a threat Michael Myers is. I think without Loomis... I'm not sure it would work quite as well as it does because you need someone because the movie's very, very tight, very sharp. There's very little dialogue, very little exposition, which is obviously great, especially when you look at modern horror movies where they kind of like they're kind of self-conscious and they feel like they have to keep talking constantly and explaining the plot to each other. Um, But yeah, you do need that one character to keep kind of moving it along and telling everyone, no, this is a very real danger. We need to take this seriously. And nobody listens to him. And then, you know, he's also kind of torn because he spent so much time with Michael. He obviously has some kind of connection to him. You know, he feels like he's failed him, which he has. And, you know, and then there's that that brilliant scene with the nurse yeah. where she gets pulled out of the car. And it's just, I feel like his terror is really, really potent. And I think that does a great job of selling how much danger the characters are in. Because as I said before, they don't realise they're in danger. I mean, Laurie kind of does, but not really. You know what I mean? So, and it, and it's also, it's so funny that it's Donald Pleasance. Like I just rewatched um, Austin Powers and one of the trivia points was like, isn't it funny that Dr. Evil is basically Blofeld, uh, who was played by Donald Pleasance. And in this, he's fighting Mike Myers. <laughs> and I was like... I don't know if that's trivia, but that's fun. <laughs> I mean, the thing that I love about that sequence with Nurse, um, with Marion in the in the kind of in the rain, is that he does run over and he does ask if she's okay. To his credit, he does yes. do that, but he doesn't help her up. Instead, he just stands there and yells, "It's gone! The evil has escaped!" And it's like maybe priorities, Lewis. Like maybe you could just help her up and then like quietly state that, just for the record. I mean, I, I often. 
Like, what are the behind the scenes in the in the you know the Smiths Grove uh, psychiatric facility? What's it like working with Samuel Looms? Like being in sort of like the staff room. With Samuel oh God, <laughs> we've run out of coffee again. Oh, the evil has escaped. <laughs> he's such he's such an arsehole, and he's brilliant because he's such an arsehole. Like he's not a conventionally kind of like heroic character. He's this vaguely crumpled Colombo style figure in his trench coat and his revolver that he has to go and get. You know, it's kind of a kind of a bad psychiatrist. Like, and I'm, I'm just gonna blame. Like, this is kind of all his fault. It feels like if maybe he'd been a little better with Myers, maybe a little bit earlier on. Like, I think I was reading some psychiatrist who was talking about like their their opinion of Loomis and like their their key point they hit is like it took him seven years to realize that this this child was irredeemable, despite the fact he stopped talking immediately. And apparently in seven years, he just kept trying to talk to him and never once tried any nonverbal therapy. And after seven years, it was like, I give up. The kid's evil. That's obviously, that's <laughs> the only thing that could possibly be wrong, which is... We've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. <laughs> For seven years, though. <laughs> <But> Sorry. <laughs> Doesn't it kind of doesn't it kind of make clear that like Loomis is in his own way as 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 crazy as as is yeah. crucially as crazy as his patient is? Um, yeah. I mean, the comparison that's always made as well is that essentially this is like the Moby Dick of horror. <laughs> that, yeah, you know, you've got he's Ahab and and Michael is his white whale, and you know, in a way, he's been waiting for the he's been waiting all this time for this to happen. Um, and you know he is this Cassandra figure as well. But imagine how boring the film would be if it was just the cops of of some, of uh, Haddonfield who were the ones you know realizing and trying to you know presumably to make more mm. of the sheriff bracket being um Annie's father that would be a bigger deal you know but and it is in in the in the the zombie film which of course we will get to in many weeks time um but uh, I th- I think he just you know he's there for 5 days he's earning his $20,000 and by god he is earning his $20,000 it's yeah. like yeah. and it's it's on a level of like you know a star lending gravitas on like Alec Guinness popping into Star Wars or mm-hmm. you know more recently maybe it's a terrible example like Helen Mirren you know narrating um, Barbie uh, spoiler alert for Barbie um and uh, you know it's just it, it gives it a sense of you know not just connection to particularly british kind of like um film history and, and horror i've been in quite a few kind of horror films by that stage hadn't he as well in the yeah. uk um but he really commits to the bit and i think you have to give him all, all due credit and it's kind of a, an insane performance and i love it so to you know. to stand to stand up for loomis as well like the, that, <laughs> that, that psychiatrist doesn't know that he didn't try uh, non-verbal not, therapy not, there, there could have been experimental spanking therapy for, for some of those seven years um, <laughs> Loomis just sitting Michael on his knees and spanking him for seven years yeah. and seeing if that beats the evil out of him the, no the evil is still there um, to, to, to talk very quickly about this obviously like I like that despite the fact this isn't a supernatural horror he's very clearly the Van Helsing character He's the only person who understands this evil in any conceptual way and everybody else thinks he's mad, the Cassandra thing you mentioned. Um, the thing about Pleasance, which I love, is that he he was very much a workman-like actor. So, like, throughout filming, he would be like, look, John, whatever you say works. Like, in interviews, he'd be just... I, 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 I think, as an actor, my job is to um, try to make the script make as much sense as it can, which could be quite challenging when you have a script like this one. Um, where he's talking about how it relies on people doing things that people wouldn't actually do in order for drama to exist and it's my job as an actor to make sure that uh, you can believe that as much as you can like the only thing that he ever fought that he ever fought Carpenter on was the sequence where he finds the body um, in the grass he was originally meant to be calling his wife and saying 
honey, no, I won't be home this evening. And apparently his big take was, how do you think my character has a wife? Like my one note on reading this script is, how do you think that my character either has a wife or cares about her enough to let her know that he won't be home because he's hunting Michael Myers? Um, But throughout he was like, I will do whatever you ask of me. There's the moment where at the end the body disappears and he says he's gone. Um, And it's like, he says to Carpenter, I can play this one of two ways. I can play this like, oh my God, I didn't know this was going to happen and I'm terrified. Or no, I kind of expected him to be gone. And Carpenter's like, well, I knew immediately that it was probably going to be the, no, I knew immediately that this was going to happen. But it's like, no, just shoot both of them and we'll figure it out in the ending bay. Which is kind of not how actors often think about their roles, where they're like, no, I know what my character thinks. My character would definitely know that he was going to disappear and that's what I'm going to give you. I love the pleasance of just like, no, I can play it either way. Which one do you want? Just tell me which way. Just point me in the direction. Like, hey, Donald, um, we're just going to shoot a scene for another movie where you're wearing the same clothes <laughs> and this character in that movie <laughs> feels this different <laughs> feels way about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, very famously, when they're making Halloween 2, they actually reshot material for this, for the extended television version, which is fascinating. And apparently they got paid more for shooting those scenes that they inserted in the TV version of this movie than they did for the original cut of this movie. As Pleasance has said, his great regret is that instead of, he said, I took the 20 grand, I was offered profit participation, but I took the 20 grand and I regretted that for the rest of my life. Um, which I can, <laughs> I can imagine. didn't do the Alec Guinness. No. <laughs> mm. But all right, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything we haven't discussed already? So Joey, anything jumping out at you in terms of your notes? Um... I suppose just that there are so many iconic shots like him sitting up in the background and emerging from the shadows and they redid a lot of them in Halloween 2018 which I thought was really fun but they flipped it so it was Laurie instead of Michael. I just I don't know it's one of those movies where not a second of screen time is wasted obviously because they didn't have any money and they didn't have any time Um, but yeah I just I love it even more every time I watch it and I find so many new details to appreciate because it is such a detailed movie such a considered movie. Um, and I just, yeah, I don't know. I think it's pretty, pretty near perfect for me anyway. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, iconic shots. I, one of my personal favorite shots is that moment where he like kills Bob and he pins him to the wall with the knife and he kind of stands there and he looks at him and he tilts his head Yes, and it's, it's an iconic moment. It's a moment that kind of lodged in the memory of everybody who saw the film. In fact, you'll notice like throughout the franchise, there will always be moments where Myers will kind of pause and tilt his head, whether looking at the camera, looking at the characters, looking at something that he's done. Mm. And and I kind of, I, I love that that shot. It's just so evocative and so effective. And it communicates so much without saying anything where it's like, is it because Michael is still a boy? He doesn't understand what he's done. He can't parse what he's done. He's looking at a body. He's looking at this dead body and has no idea like what he just did or or why it has changed or stopped moving after what he did to it. Or, you know, is it thematically like the idea that, you know, the get quite niche in the darkness looks into us, but the idea that we don't understand Myers fundamentally. He is unsolvable. He is a mystery. He's just a random act of violence, but it works both ways. We are as alien to him as he is to us. He he doesn't understand people. He is trying to understand us and he un- tries to understand us through this act of violence. 
um, that that's his language of communication for with something that he doesn't understand. Like it, it, again, it, it's it's ambiguous, it's effective, and it's just a, a stunning image. And I think we should mention as well. We've already mentioned him a couple of times, but just Dean Cundey cinematography. This yes. is a beautiful looking movie, particularly considering the constraints under which it was made. Uh, the the framing, the composition, it's all beautiful, stunning, and it's shot at night. And it's shot at night and you can see everything that is going on. And that is rare. There are horror movies today still being made that aren't as clear as this one is, where it isn't as easy to see what's going on when the movie wants you to see what's going on, you know? Oh, absolutely. It's just, yeah, when you watch something like this, you're like, wow, they really knew how to lit this, how to light this rather and nowadays you're like, what's happening? Is there something over there? Who cares? Um, and also, just while we're talking about Carpenter, a very boring technical point, which I quite like, which is like his axis of movement, which is, again, very classical, very traditional. The camera will often like pan or push, but it'll often move on like that two dimensional plane. It won't move up. It won't mm. move down. So you'll see an object in the camera move left or it'll move right. When a character is, say, getting into a car, you'll cut from a shot of them over the car to a shot of them opening the door to a shot of them in the car. The camera won't move down to follow them sitting in the car. And he uses that to great effect because whenever he wants to unsettle the audience, he will have lateral movement within the frame. Mm. So the famous example is Myers jumping up and moving on top of the car because you're like, I didn't know this movie could move like that. Yes. The sequence where he sits up behind Laurie which, as you said, is one of the great shots. But there's also the sequence where he's in the back of the car or there's a sequence where I think Laurie goes up to the house and he literally just like moves up from kneeling behind the car. Yes. And it's just really unsettling because you're like, I did not know that objects in this movie could move in that dimension, which is very effective. But Bernice, anything you want to say? Anything we, ha- anything we haven't discussed already? Yeah, I'd just like to add that in the pantheon of horror line readings that I will always sit through the film for is... Um, in addition to Lonnie, get your ass off the porch, is when, <laughs> is when one of Loomis's colleagues says to him, you know, how did that, how did Myers learn how to drive? <laughs> a reasonable question. He's been in an institution for, you know, his entire childhood and young adulthood. And Loomis shouts, well, he was doing very well last night. <laughs> it's only an automatic, though. It's like a go-kart. You know what I mean? But it's the way, it's the also- way he says it. It's just, it's just, and, um, I will say as well that um, I one of the things I like about this film is I think there's a very um, economically established but a really sweet relationship in this film between Laurie and the kids that she's babysitting that, yes. that really works. Like they feel like real kids in a way that uh, what's the first um, uh, green uh, uh, Halloween? There's a there's a Halloween 2018 scene. and there's Halloween Kills. Yeah, there's a great scene oh, yeah, he's with the adorable. Little, little boy and his babysitter and there's a different, more tragic resolution to that scene. Um, yeah. But I thought, felt it was kind of hearkening back to that very genuine seeming kind of dynamic between between um, babysitter and child. Uh, better babysitter than I ever was, Laurie Strode. Mm. So uh, yeah, those are those are two things that come to mind. Nobody over the course of this movie watches Maximum Overdrive. They do watch The Thing, uh, which I like as well. Uh, and I like that you can then take, that the entire movie apparently takes place over an hour and 40 minutes because they're timed. They keep cutting back to the TV with the action on it. Um, See, so much detail. Also, I just, re- I just remembered Adam Green, uh, indie horror filmmaker, 
made a video of Michael learning to drive, and it's very funny if you want oh, to. Oh, I, I definitely would watch that. Yes, if, yeah, that sounds like good, it was made specifically for people like me who did wonder how did he learn? To drive. Yeah, how did that exactly? He was wondering it too. It's it's funny. I, it's, it's exactly what you're imagining. I was wondering that, and then like straight away, I think the movie is answered is kind of like yeah, asks and answers the question. Like, I love that its answer is he... shut the fuck up. Like, yeah, like, yeah. Well, it's like yeah, his answer is he can drive. Yeah. No, they're, they're, come on, we have to go. There's the line, maybe someone around here gave him lessons. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I don't think anybody around there gave Green him did. lessons. Adam Green did. Adam Green did imagine it. He was like, yeah, someone did. We will talk about the novelization of the first Halloween, likely when we talk about Halloween 6. So I'm just letting, setting that pebble far enough down the road. But there is an extended sequence in the original novelization of the movie Halloween from 1978, which explains that Michael, when he was being driven to the institution... He was in a van with a partition at the back, so he was watching very closely while the person was driving the car. Ah. And that is how he knows how to drive a car. No. Apparently. I wish learning how to drive had been so easy for me. But, uh, I I personally had a but we have much to, we have to learn manual. Like, <laughs> it's an automatic. It's just go and stop. I feel like there is a pretty good movie about a driver's ed class at like a a, 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 a chronically insane um so this, uh, like crim, criminally insane is it where the, where it's like the oh, futility it's like criminal drives that's what you call it you call it like criminal dri- psychic drives psychic drives yeah to drive and then the 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 it it ends where the, where this movie it <laughs> begins. begins um I, I, but again it's like it's you know you would call it death drive there we go i like that <laughs> But I like that in a modern movie, that would be like the quippy Marvel thing where they say, I guess someone oh. taught him. Uh. But yeah. I like that. It, well, that just happened. Yeah, I, I like that in this movie, Loomis is like, shut up, stop asking questions and let me do my fucking job. Um, all right. And Andrew, anything jumping out at you? Um, the, no, no. Um, not really. Like the, there's a little sideburn on that cigarette. She doesn't quite get it. Um, the uh, there's the nurse smoking. Uh, maybe oh, nurses Andrew. shouldn't smoke. I don't know. I, I I have a great inappropriate smoking example for you. Yes. Um, the first one is that they have a matchbook from the Red Bunny Room, which seems to be tied to some sort of sexual desire that's unspoken. So you have that moment where Loomis notices the matchbook in the car and then just casts her a bit of a side eye, uh, which is kind of again. You know, kind of subtexty stuff. And then obviously Rob Zombie takes that subtext and decides the Red Rabbit Room is actually just a strip club. Um, because, of course, Rob Zombie does not care for your subtlety. The <laughs> other inappropriate smoking thing is there's a sequence where the shape disappears behind the bush and Annie goes over to see him. And if you watch the frame very closely, you'll notice a puff of smoke coming in from the left hand side because John Carpenter, who is a chain smoker, was directing that scene and just happened to exhale a bunch of smoke into the side of the camera. <laughs> and they didn't realize until they printed the scene. That is inappropriate That's smoking, funny. I think. Yeah, there, there's there's the food waste of him, him dropping and crushing an entire Popcorn. pumpkin. Yeah, we don't know how much of the dog he eats either. No. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> all right. Uh, yeah, you have to use all, and and I suppose the the obligatory Robocop reference is the fact that there is a Halloween scene in in Robocop. I guess. I mean, Michael Myers is the walking Robocop reference for this, like for the next thirteen episodes of this suppose, podcast. Yeah, yeah. Um, or the next tw- twelve of the next thirteen episodes of this podcast. There will be some head trauma. There. <laughs> um. 
All right, then. What we normally do at the end of the episode is we ask our guests to recommend something. It could be something related to the movie, something unrelated to the movie, just something that brings them joy in these uncertain times. This is going out in October, so feel free for a spooky recommendation. But to give Bernice, to give Joey a chance to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. I did think about Mike Myers. <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> a truly and, scary proposition. Yeah, and, uh, the love and, guru. The scariest Joey, horror Joey, movie of our time. Oh God. Joey did mention <laughs> Austin Powers, and I did watch it. But I came away from it thinking... Did, was it was it the spy who shagged me that was the good one i think it was right but i i watched it, it spy who shagged me is good spy shagged me i is like meaner. all of them i watched international man of mystery i did enjoy the joke about the the henchman's private lives and like the thing with rob Lowe and all that sort of Oh, the, the, yeah, the... Um, <laughs> Where it, it'll, it'll go off Decapitated for like, by uh, it'll three or four minutes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I'd, I'd, I'd recommend They Live. It's, it's, nice. it's just such a searing uh, satire on uh, capitalist mind control. That whole kind of like, um, you know... Um, well, Reagan's um, America. Yeah, yeah, it's the 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 public relations uh, industrial complex, <laughs> I guess. Where um, that and that or prick, like, if you will, Ed, Edward Bernays thing of of um, you know get get it getting to people's kind of deepest desires and like monetizing. It. Um, yeah, um, and I I I, 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 just, I just think it's a terrific movie. And they're really fun. It's a great movie. I make it sound like it's... Um, <laughs> for, a searing portrayal of late capitalism <laughs> that will leave you sitting in your seat, it's silent, boss. stony face. It is. It rocks. Yes. Um, all right. And Bernice, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? Uh, I would recommend, since we've been talking about the wonderful Donald Pleasance, who, were he still with us, I would be happy to hire for $20,000 for five days. Um <laughs> A, a film called Wake and Fear, which I had only seen for the first time earlier this year, I believe it was. And it's essentially, a, I think to call it maybe a backwards horror film is maybe a little reductive, but it's school teacher gets a weekend off and keeps trying to leave the Australian outback to go to the city and he can never leave. Uh, it's, it's one of the best. It's very funny, but it's also a really horrific film about kind of... Um, toxic masculinity um in the you know and uh, and about australianness and uh, donald mm-hmm. pleasance has a small but really incredibly memorable role as a character who's been out in the outback maybe a bit too long and it's it's <laughs> a really it's an incredible film i think it was on shutter i'm not sure if it still is i just give a warning there are famously in this film there are scenes of actual um animal cruelty there's a kangaroo hunt that was filmed an actual kangaroo hunt so if that's not your jam uh, and in fact you know not many you do enjoy watching kangaroo hunts there's probably something wrong with you but uh <laughs> i know some people might might understand and be very sensitive to that but wake and fear is great i would also quickly mention um a tremendous novel that i read over the summer um i'm doing a lot of work myself about kind of true crime and true crime media at the moment and there's a really Ugh. remarkable english novel that's just out called penance by a writer called eliza clark and it's there's a lot of books out there at the moment that are kind of like, what if a podcaster discovers a murderer or, you know, that are kind of like riffing off the true crime sort of boom. But this is um, by far the most intelligent and the most effective and also very sad and quite poignant um, novel about the aftermath of a terrible, true, terrible crime. That take, it's a novel, I should say, uh, but it's done in sort of a mock documentary style uh, within the book. So Penance is really, really good. It is disturbing, um, 
I think it earns it earns the right to disturb if you know what I mean. It's not gratuitous in any way. And um it's particularly focusing about a like a, a friendship group of teenage girls and one of them uh is 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 killed and this is explaining kind of what happened. So I really recommend that. Um both so those are my two my two shout outs. And Joey, what would you recommend? What are you enjoying at the moment? I'm going to recommend a book as well called The Final Girl Support Group. It's a Grady Hendrix book and it's just terrific. Although if you're like me and you love Scream, you might kind of guess where it's going towards the end. But um, it's, yeah, it's, you know, it's all these final girls and they're all based on characters from the big franchises, which is really fun. And they begin being targeted by a serial killer. And it's just, it's so brilliantly done. And especially if you're a horror fan, there are so many nods, but it doesn't feel like it's pandering either, which I really appreciate because sometimes you can kind of sense that someone's trying to show off. Um, but it's, yeah, it's very, very special. I also want to say The Mortuary Collection, which is a really, really great anthology. I think it's The Mortuary Collection. That's I could Clancy be. Brown, isn't it? Clancy Brown, yeah. I interviewed him for it. He was so great. Except I asked him about Mr. Krabs and there was this big silence where I thought I'd pissed him off. And then he just started laughing. <laughs> but I was like, whoops. Um, but yeah, in that movie, there's a section called The Babysitter Murders, and it's an homage to Halloween, and it's great. I think it's The Mortuary Collection. I hope I'm not remembering it wrong. Um, but The Mortuary Collection is great anyway, even if I am just going completely mad from watching too many horror movies. <laughs> but yeah, those are my two. Um, all right. And for myself, uh, just very quickly, I liked the movie Influencer recently. It's available on Shudder. Had a good time with it. Yes. If you are subscribing to Lionsgate Plus, whether for a seven day free trial in order to watch the first seven, six movies in the Halloween franchise. Uh, oh, yeah, the Great. tell me. The, gra- <laughs> the, the Great is fantastic and is on there. Um, and also the Hannibal is on there as How's well, which is a nice Halloween one. Yeah. <laughs> It's G R A T E. <laughs> the Great, yes. Okay. Yeah. Not G R E A T. G R E A T, the Great, yeah. Oh, sorry. I it's, said G R A T and you said yes. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry. We have been going for quite a while, which is going to make our conversation in three and a half weeks very fascinating. We have been going a while. Um, but yes, I would recommend that's the one with Nicholas Hout and with Elle Fanning. It's about Catherine the Great. It's from the writer of The Favourite. Elle Fanning. Yeah, Elle Fanning. Yeah, yeah. So I would wholeheartedly recommend that. That does All right, sound th- good. So, if people are looking for a bit more Bernice in their lives, where can they find you? Watch out, watch up to. Um, I guess I'm still on Twitter. I refuse to call it by the other name. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So for now, <laughs> uh, it's at Murph Gothic, and uh, I intermittently tweet about horror stuff and other things. And you cover this movie in the suburban Gothic. I remember, right? Oh, I do, and I should say I have had a book out last year about um, called California Gothic, which is now available in all good academic libraries because it costs about one hundred and eighty pounds, and no one's going to buy it. Well, maybe you will if you're if you if you want to spend your Donald Pleasant's money on academic texts. <laughs> I recommend. <laughs> I mean, it's only a fraction of the budget. Of, I mean, it's a bigger California fraction Gothic. of the budget. Yeah. Oh, and there's a there's a whole chapter about John Carpenter's The Fog. I should have connected that um, in my book California cool. Gothic. Yeah, so you can read all about why it's a very California film. Perfect. Um, and Joey, where can we find you? Watch out, watch up to. I'm still on Twitter too until the place burns down. So at Joey LDG, which is Living Dead Girl, which is a Rob Zombie reference. So hang on tight for lots of Rob Zombie takes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Not really, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, I will say those were the, when we were lining up guests for that season, those were the two episodes that everyone was immediately like, I want to talk about those two movies. Um so Bernice, no pressure. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, we will be back next week. We were originally planning on doing, you know, eight or maybe all 13 of these episodes 
over the month of October, but then decided that, that would be insane, and also we would burn through our entire back catalog. So we are going to release these episodes regularly, we're going to release them weekly, so next week we'll be back talking about Halloween 2. Joey will be joining us for all the 13 episodes, Yay. but next week our special <laughs> guest will be the wonderful Billie Jean Doheny to talk about Rick Rosenthal's Halloween 2. Now look, if you're just here for Bernice... And look, myself and Andrew aren't offended by that, although Joey probably should be. It's a small but select fan base, I ah! hope. <laughs> I'm not offended. I bow down to Bernice's superior knowledge. <laughs> and look, if you are a Bernice bro, Bernice will be rejoining us to discuss Rob Zombie's Halloween in early December, just in time for Christmas. It's a hot ticket. Really, really looking forward to it. It should be a really fun discussion. Thank you so much, guys. This has been a delight. This has been a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Bye.